President Biner, the recording is now on. It is 2 o'clock PM. Thank you. Good afternoon and thank you for being here. I am using my gavel to call to order this regular meeting of the San Francisco Civil Service Commission on Monday, August 21, 2023 at 2 PM. Our commission staff will read a statement with more information about our meeting today. Thereafter, staff will tell us how we're handling public comment. Good afternoon and welcome to the Civil Service Commission meeting this Monday, August 21st, 2023. This meeting is being held in hybrid format with the meeting occurring in person at City Hall room 400 and available to view on WebEx if you have an item scheduled on the agenda. The public may listen to the meeting by calling 415-655-0001 and entering access code 2663-147-4793. We welcome the public's participation during public comment periods. There will be an opportunity for general public comment on items not on the agenda at the beginning of the meeting, and there will be an opportunity to comment on each discussion or action item on the agenda. Each comment is limited to three minutes. Public comment will be taken both in person or remotely by video or call-in. For each item, the commission will take public comment first from people attending the meeting in person and then from people attending the meeting remotely. Commission staff will provide further instructions on how to provide public comment via phone or video. If you need assistance accessing the meeting virtually or by phone, please call 628-652-1100. Please note that city policies along with federal, state, and local law prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. Moreover, public comment is permitted only on matters within the jurisdiction of this meeting body. Commission staff will now provide further instructions on making public comment remotely. As stated on our agenda and our website, this meeting is being held remotely. For members who wish to listen in or to make public comment, the phone number is 415-655-0001. The meeting ID code is 2663-147-4793. Please make sure that you're in a quiet location and that you turn off any television or radio to reduce reverberation so the commission can hear you. At the appropriate time, the president will ask for the phone lines to be open. If you wish to uh, comment on a particular item, you will be prompted to press start three. This will add you to the speaker line. The auto prompt will say that callers are entering question and answer time, but this is the public comment period. You will be queued up in the order in which you press start three. There will be an automated voice that will tell you when it is your turn to speak. When your microphone has been unmuted, you will hear us ask you to state your name and to make your comments. When your time is up, I will say thank you. Next caller, please. At this point, the moderator will put you back on mute. Thank you. Executive officer, we're ready for the first agenda item. Item number one, call to order and roll call. President Minor. Here. Vice President Favetti. Here. Commissioner Crowley. Present. Commissioner Salveson. Here. And we have a quorum. We're ready for the second agenda item. Item two, request to speak on any matter within the jurisdiction of the Civil Service Commission, but not appearing on today's agenda. Uh, members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on any matter within the subject matter jurisdiction of the commission. 
If you have public comment, you may come to the podium if you're in the room. If you're on the telephone, press star three now. Would you like to read? I will read this before we begin public comment. During general public comment, members of the public sometimes wish to address the Civil Service Commission regarding matters that may come before the commission in its capacity as an adjudicative body. The commission does not restrict this use of general public comment to protect the due process rights of parties to its adjudicative proceedings. However, the commission will not consider in connection with any adjudicative proceeding statements made during general public comment. If members of the public have information that they believe to be relevant to a matter that will come before the commission in its adjudicative capacity, they may wish to address the commission during the public comment portion of that adjudicative proceeding. The commission will not consider public comment in connection with an adjudicative proceeding without providing the parties an opportunity to respond. At this time, the commission will take public comment on matters not on the agenda, but within the jurisdiction of the commission. The maximum time allowed will be three minutes unless a significant number of speakers request to be heard, in which event the commission president or chair may elect to reduce the maximum time allowed. A subsequent comment made by an individual speaker after their initial allowance is limited to one minute. Okay, thank you. Um, Elizabeth, approximately how many speakers do we have on the telephone? President Minor, we have 29 callers, but no one has raised their hand at this moment. Okay, we will go with three minutes for public comment. You may proceed. Thank you. Okay, my, my name is Steve Zeltzer. I'm with Workweek and the United Front Committee for a Labor Party. And I'm here today to address the issue of outsourcing and privatization in the city and county of San Francisco. Uh, there are hundreds of millions of dollars of contracts that your commission votes on uh, by year and billions over the last few years. And the fact of the matter is a lot of those contracts are going to companies that do the same work as public workers. So why, as a commission that wants to protect the public service, would you be outsourcing, or the city being outsourcing, the mayor want to outsource jobs that could be done by public workers? This is a serious question that we're concerned about because, frankly, there is no systemic oversight of these contracts that you're giving out, hundreds of millions of dollars. What, what city agency is responsible for oversight of all these contracts that you're giving out? Who does it? Including the nonprofits. Frankly, the city is not doing oversight of the contracting out, which leads, what, to corruption, it leads to nepotism, and it actually destroys civil service. And especially we're coming into a budget crisis in San Francisco, and the first group that's going to be hit are city workers, public workers. We don't have enough money for you. We can't give you wage increases. We have to give you layoffs. Well, how about ending the policy of contracting out and outsourcing and provide public jobs with tests, which apparently you can't do. You're even outsourcing the tests for civil service, which is the responsibility of the Civil Service Commission. Why would you be outsourcing the testing of public employees when that's your job? So we have a profound crisis in San Francisco, and it's growing worse uh, actually every year. The corruption, uh, the lack of oversight, uh, the nepotism, uh, a big cause of that is outsourcing and contracting out. So it has to end, and I believe there needs to be a united front of all public workers and the community to stop this outsourcing. Uh, you have a thing about uh, 
outsourcing of uh, lanes, uh, you know, back bike lanes in San Francisco on your thing. You know, th this is another job that could be done by city workers, Department of Public Works. Why is it being done by private agencies? I think it goes against labor. It goes against the working class. It's union busting, and it's contrary to the interests of working people in San Francisco. Thank you for your comments. Please come to the podium. Hi, my name is Brenda Barrows. I'm a city employee. And uh, the two things I want to talk about first is contracting out to. Uh, the reason I came today is I, I was told that there were $200 million in DPH contracts floating around somewhere. And I want to know what they are. And I want to know who they're going to impact because it's probably our workers. Uh, the other part that I want to talk about is I heard that they released the COVID vaccine mandate. And we still have all these employees that were terminated because they didn't take the COVID thing. So on one hand, how can you say that it's not necessary anymore, but then you still have these people fired? So I, I wanna request that those people get called back to work. We have shortages of people. We need the employees. Everybody knows it. They're experienced. They know the jobs. So I don't understand why they're still sitting at home when they could be here doing this work. Uh, thank you for your comments. We're, we're ready to hear your public comment. Hi, good afternoon, civil service commissioners. My name is Cheryl Thornton, and I'm here today um, to say why should San Francisco Civil Service Commission post data on racial discrimination lawsuits settled by the city and county of San Francisco? Uh, posting data on racial discrimination lawsuit settlements by the city and county and San Francisco Civil Service Commission can serve several important purposes. Transparency and accountability, sharing information about racial discrimination lawsuits and settlements demonstrates transparency in how the city handles such cases. It holds government accountable for the actions and decisions related to these matters. Public awareness. Making the data available informs the public about the prevalence of racial discrimination cases within the city. This can lead to increased awareness and discussion about the issue at hand, potentially driving positive change. Identifying patterns by analyzing the data, patterns and trends related to racial discrimination cases can be identified. This can help uncover systemic issues that need to be addressed to prevent further incidents. Policy improvement. Access to the information can prompt policymakers to review and improve existing anti-discrimination policies, procedures, and trainings to prevent future cases. Equity and justice. Sharing the data and settlements can highlight the efforts being made to address racial discrimination and promote equitable treatment for all residents. It can also reassure affected communities that their concerns are being taken seriously. Community trust. Transparency about racial discrimination lawsuits can contribute to building trust between city government and its residents, particularly communities that have been historically marginalized. Accounting for taxpayers' money. As settlements 
often involve financial compensation. Transparency ensures that taxpayers are aware of how public funds are being used and allocated. And then finally, benchmarking progress. Over time, monitoring data on settlements can help measure the effectiveness and anti-discrimination efforts and initiatives providing benchmarks for progress. And then this can inspire change, transparency, and can encourage other organizations and institutions to address their own issues related to racial discrimination and work towards more inclusive and equitable environments. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Thornton. Any additional public comment? Uh, Elizabeth, any public comment on the telephone? President Minor, no public comment at this time. Okay, uh, thank you. We are ready to move to the next agenda item. Item three, approval of minutes, regular meeting of August 7, 2023, recommendation, adopt the minutes. Uh, commissioners, we have in front of us the minutes from our meeting of August 7, 2023. Are there any comments or edits to the meeting? Uh, Commissioner Salveson. I just had a question at our last meeting. We, um, we made a clerical correction with respect to one of the series of rules that we uh, adopted and they're not reflected in the minutes. And I'm, I guess I'm asking our uh, deputy city attorney whether clerical corrections need to be reflected in the minutes. Deputy City Attorney Kate Kimberlin, I think I was, the mic keeps going on and off, apologies. Um, I wasn't, unfortunately, I was not here at the last meeting, so I'm not certain of what the clerical correction was. Basically, there was inconsistency in the, the term employment opportunity website, sometimes employment opportunity, sometimes employment opportunities. And so those um, places were called out and, um, and it was determined, I guess, that it was a clerical correction that needed to be made. Understood. So those were discussed at the last meeting and made the changes were made before the rules were approved. Yeah, and they're just not reflected in the minutes. So I'm wondering whether they need to be reflected. I don't think so. No, thank you. Vice President Favetti. Uh, yes, uh, this is on uh, item number. Let's see, six, the executive officer report uh, on the minutes. And we have here action. However, we didn't take a vote. What we did is we gave general direction. And I was wondering if the minutes should reflect instead. The commission gave general direction and then identify all the items that are here and then and specify that no action was taken. Which one is that? That's uh, the, ex the executive officer's report processing and scheduling of appeals before the Civil Service Commission. So the commission uh, didn't take a, a formal action. They didn't take a vote. We didn't take a vote. So we, but we did give general direction and ask for all those items to be. So what I was going to do is suggest that we, um, or recommend or move that we amend the minutes to indicate that general direction was given by the civil service commission uh, to for uh, to continue with the following, and then then no vote was taken. I second that motion. Okay, any additional comments, uh, commissioners? Oh, we have a motion to adopt. 
I just forgot. I forgot uh -huh. to say it and adopt the minutes. So oh, it's gonna be my, my motion to say adopt the minutes with that particular amendment. Yes, we have a a motion and a second to adopt the minutes from our meeting of August 7, 2023, uh, subject to um, a correction or an addition on page four, executive officer's report which would indicate that uh, the commission gave general direction as per the bullets um, under the action item, but the commission did not take a formal vote. If you're in the room and you have public comment on the motion, you may come to the podium now. If you're on the telephone, you may press star three. Are you talking about point eight personal service contracts? Uh, no, we're talking about the minutes from August 7th. Okay. Um, agenda item number three. President Mayor, um, no public comment at this time. Okay. Um, commissioners will move to the roll call vote to ap approve the, uh, the, the minutes of our August 7th meeting subject to the uh, additions indicated, Vice President Favetti. Aye. Commissioner Crawley. Aye. Commissioner Savison. And I vote aye. We have approved our minutes of our meeting of August 7, 2023. Executive Officer, we're, we're ready for the next agenda item. Item four, announcements, announcements of changes to the agenda. Commissioners, um, the city administrator's office has requested to postpone item number 17, review of request for approval of proposed PSC 44539-2223. They are the only changes. Okay, uh, thank you. We are ready for the next agenda item. Item five, human resources director's report. Uh, Director Eisen, thank you for being with us and we are ready to hear your report. Uh, Good afternoon, Madam President, members of the commission. I have three items that I wish to report on. Uh, the first is to uh, focus your attention on your consent agenda. Um, items 10 through 16, we have a total of seven reports in front of you. These are all required reports by the commission. Um, and uh, we hope that you find um, our uh, reports to you acceptable. We can answer any questions you might have. Um, we are required to submit an eighth report. Um, that report, um, the requirement dates back to 1999, um, in which we are supposed to report annually about promotive-only examinations. And uh, I'm reporting here on my general manager's report that there have been no promotive only examinations during this fiscal year. And uh, just to embellish a bit on that point, we have not given any promotive only examinations since 2016. That's my first item. Uh, the second item involves the grand jury, the civil grand jury report um, that was recently issued, time to get to work. It um, examines um, the hiring practices of the city and focusing specifically on the length of time that it typically takes to hire an employee, to hire a permanent civil service employee. Um, we, uh, I think we've met 
with the grand jury. I know that uh, your staff has done as well. That report has been issued. Uh, the mayor uh, issued an official response, um, I believe, late last week. Uh, we have worked co closely with your executive director, um, coordinating our response. And I uh, just want to thank Sandra for her work. Um, and uh, what we're, what happens next is that the Board of Supervisors, um, the likely the Government Audit and Oversight Committee will conduct a hearing on the report, likely in September. I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, it's my view that the, re the report was timely, uh, but it caught us while we were uh, beginning a number of steps. I think we've made a lot of progress. It has been slow and painstaking. It's going to continue to be that way. But I believe that um, we're seeing examples of um, our hiring speeding up quite a bit. Um, our vacancy rate has dropped, and I'm looking forward to be able to provide that response to the board. And again, we'll be working with your staff to prepare um, for that hearing. And finally, I want to address the um, question of the vaccine policy, the COVID-19 vaccine policy um, on Wednesday. Um, the 23rd of August, this coming Wednesday, our uh, policy that has been in place um, since the start of the COVID pandemic is being rescinded. Um, it is a going forward uh, policy. It will, having being vaccinated for COVID-19 will no longer be a requirement as a condition of employment uh, to be a city employee. The health orders uh, will still be set by the health officer. Those health orders will affect a number of city employees um, that will still be required under health order to be vaccinated. Presently, that includes personnel who are stationed in designated health care facilities and in our jails. Um, if an employee who has uh, either resigned or been separated from city service due to the prior vaccine policy, uh, that employee has various rights under civil service rules and can also reapply for um, appointment with the city and will be working with any employee who is interested in doing that. Uh, those are my three items. Happy to answer any questions and uh, thank you for time on the agenda. Thank you, Director Eisen. And commissioners, any questions uh, or comments for Director Eisen? Okay, um, no questions from commissioners. Uh, okay, uh, Vice President Favetti. Just thank you for the reports. It was welcome, welcome. It was been, and also very well done, all of them, but uh, lots of questions anyway. <laughs> are you talking about the reports yes. that are to come on the agenda? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Commissioner. All right. Um, so we will take uh, public comment if there is any public comment on Director Eisen's report. Uh, if you have public comment, you may come to the podium now if you're in the room. If you're on the telephone, you may press star three and you'll be recognized. Steve Zeltzer, uh, Workweek United Front Committee for Labor Party. Um, it's very telling here that there's no report about how many vacancies there are and when tests are going to be done for the different departments. We don't know. The people of San Francisco don't know how many tests have not been done. And there's been testimony at previous meetings of people waiting decades, years to have testing. Has that been rectified? 
no report on that. Um, I think that there's these tests have been held up because they don't want to employ public workers. That puts pressure to contract out work. I think it's intentional. And again, it's a push to privatize public services. Uh, on the issue of uh, the COVID crisis, it still exists. People are still getting COVID. Uh, the city has not required uh, testing to continue, regardless of whether you have the vaccine or not. There still should be testing for city and county employees so that they know if they're being infected. Uh, the government and the corporations are not letting people know who has COVID. You go on a plane today and nobody's wearing a mask. People could have COVID and get everyone sick. Uh, I think it's a, actually criminally negligent not to do continued testing on for city employees and the public. At San Francisco City College, they're going to open up uh, and there is no schedule for testing, much less vaccines. And the, these workers who have been discharged and fired, and we don't even have an accounting of how many there are from the uh, human resources director, should be entitled to get their jobs back. These workers were retaliated against, and I can understand if I don't, I support getting vaccines myself, but I can understand people not wanting to have a vaccine, and they shouldn't be retaliated against, fired. The county of Alameda did not fire workers who did not get the vaccine. Los Angeles County did not fire workers who got the vaccine. Why is it in San Francisco, uh, under Mayor London Breed, under the Human Resources Director, workers were fired and terminated for not getting the vaccine, uh, when other agencies did not terminate the workers? So I think that these workers should be brought back. They should be sent a letter uh, by the city and county of San Francisco, inviting them to come back to their jobs and also compensation, really, for being illegally acted upon. Why should it be up to the individual worker to have to get a lawyer to fight with the city and county of San Francisco? It's unfair. It's retaliatory. And many of these workers have suffered tremendously as a result of this retaliation and discharge. Uh, thank you. Any additional public comment? Yes, um, Brenda Barrows, about the uh, COVID. Um, I agree with the previous person that is, and I'll just ask you, Carol, are you guys going to send these people something so they even know this is an option? Because they may not know it's an option, so that they know to apply again. Uh, the other part is... Um, I, I, I think that we need to look at the different positions that people are in, these people. We do have all these vacancies. And so I think maybe it should be looked at. And even if at DPH where they're saying you still have to be vaccinated, maybe they don't come back to DPH. Maybe they go to a different department. But I just think that needs to be looked at. Thank you for your comments. Any additional comments, Caesar comments on our uh, Director Eisen's report? Uh, Elizabeth, any comments online? President Minor, no public comment at this time. Okay, thank you. We are ready to move forward to uh, the next agenda item. We're now on the uh, Executive Office Report item six civil service advisor number 35 minimum qualification verification recommendation open for discussion. Good afternoon, commissioners. I will be in a homestead director. Um, 
I'm happy to let you know that we are reinstating the civil service advisor with this 35th issue is the first advisor in five years. For those not familiar with the civil service advisors, we refer to them as cliff notes for merit system rules. And that may be a little dated term for younger people in the room, uh, but their guidance uh, for all city staff on employment policies related to the merit system. So in reviewing our advisors published over the years, I realized that we didn't have one that provided guidance on minimum qualifications. Um, and how to document verification supporting an employment application to demonstrate that as an applicant, you meet the minimum qualifications. It seems fairly straightforward when you're an external applicant that you provide verification on your employer or your previous employer's letterhead uh, that val validates you perform the qualifying duties listed on your application and re any required copies of your degrees or certifications to validate that you meet the MQs. Where it becomes more difficult is, and where race equity leaders have had concerns, is the requirement of verification for internal candidates who are seeking promotive opportunities. Some of these concerns have surfaced in our meetings um, is that the bar for internal applicants seems artificially set higher than for external applicants. So the bar for internal applicants seems artificially set higher than for external applicants. So verification of MQs for internal applicants requires contemporaneous documentation, which is not easily obtained if your current job description and your length of service in that classification does not clearly demonstrate that you meet the MQs. For instance, if the applicant performed duties that are otherwise qualifying for the period of time required by the announcement, and it was not documented at the time of the assignment, their personnel file, or in an acting assignment or a memo, uh, the applicant cannot get credit for that experience and has no recourse. Because even if their supervisor confirms that they did perform the duties, they are not able to produce a memo at the time of application filing to validate the applicant meets the MQs. The race equity leaders would like to continue to discuss what remedies exist for employees who perform duties outside of their classifications, sometimes for many years and are held back from promotive opportunities because no one took the time to document their efforts at the time of assignment or in their performance appraisal. I shared this dilemma with you as one of the reasons we're looking to draft more advisors as we work, work toward racial equity in the city to bring clarity of our rules and policies and pre procedures so that, as is the case in this case, employees can learn to proactively set themselves up for success by advocating for assignments and writing uh, to be placed in their personnel file and request acting assignments when assigned duties of a higher class to begin to acquire their own contemporaneous documentation. That way, when promotional opportunities arise, they are well equipped to demonstrate that they meet the MQs. Additionally, if an applicant is rejected, this advisor informs them of the right to protest or appeal their rejection. Are there any questions? Okay, thank you, Deputy Director. And um, we will now take questions and comments from Commissioners. Uh, Commissioner Salveson. 
I just wanted to thank Deputy Director Holmes for putting this together. I think it's very good that the Civil Service Advisor Program is being <laughs> reinstated. And I thought the um, advisor was very clear and helpful. So thank you very much. Thank you, Commissioner Salveson, Vice President Favetti. I too, I too want to thank you for making, setting this up. And I think that there are two very, very important topics. Um, and I, I am particularly appreciative of your comment. And I don't know what the new, the new terminology is. I'm sure that there's new terminology for cliff notes. Do you, does anybody know, uh, or is there anybody of a generation here that does know? <laughs> I don't know, but you know, there's got, but that was exactly right. And so what I was, as I was reading this, you know, it was clear to me. I, and I thought to myself, okay, I am not going to tell you how many years I've been doing civil service because it would be frightening. And, um, but then I was thinking to myself, okay, well, what about if I was that applicant so many years ago, would I have understood this? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, we have two audiences or more than two audiences. We're going to have the audience that's potentially, um, the personnel analyst and the personnel folks, and you're going to have department heads and you're going to have applicants because they're the ones that are going to go to this website and they're going to be, because I, I, I find the advisor and I'm so glad that you're doing this is a really helpful document. And what I found here is I think that these are 2 big topics. Because you're going into contemporaneous and the out of class assignments and I'm thinking we're going to have discussions on this and I'm wondering if you want to split it up. And perhaps, you know, have a reference in 1 about the minimum qualifications with a another advisor that goes out on contemporaneous out of uh, and uh, contemporaneous documentation of out of class work and out of uh, out of class or the whole the whole question. Um, and we've had a number of these questions come up, particularly from the MTA. Um, and so that's why I just wanted to uh, consider that. And then to consider perhaps um, that, you know, because I think that this is a very, very an excellent beginning. I think we need to now remember those applicants who may not necessarily understand or all the nuances and complexities that we do because this is written by a professional and I can tell it's written by a professional <laughs> so so let's let's uh, and I, I was just wondering if we could work a little bit more on this a little and I would love to uh, provide you some direct input if you need um, and uh, but I I would like to see it in two because I'd like to be able to really focus but other than that, I think it's, I, I thank you. Thank you for doing this. And I think it's a really good, it's good, a good, a good start. Thank you. Um, executive officer. Um, first, I'd like to thank our deputy for uh, putting this all together. Um, and just to share those who may be listening and not knowing who our deputy director is, she was also uh, a former HR director for the port and also has worked in as a senior HR analyst in many of other departments in the city. So she has been exposed to much and witness all. And I have to apologize. I am the one in the office who's using the term cliff notes. Not sure if people know what I'm referring to, but I have to say that as 
we are working on our civil service advisors. These are being issued out not only to our new HR analysts, new HR managers, but our new union representatives. And I reassure them, this is like a summary of the rules. You may not know all four volumes of the rules, but if you have the civil service advisors, you can always pull that up and question uh, a department's action referring to the advisor. Um, and it was intentional that it was focused on minimum qualifications because it has been continuous in our appeals of disqualification. It has been continuous in our inspection service requests. And um, one thing we did that you will see in our year end report, we're also including the outcome of some of these appeals or inspection service requests because people have the courage to come to the Civil Service Commission and ask questions. And sometimes matters may not be appealable, but because even the Civil Service Commission sees that there may have been an error in determining if the individual is qualified, we obviously had more time than our analysts do because they're going through hundreds of applications at a time. But after speaking with the complainants and asking questions, um, and sometimes we are even verifying uh, employment verification ourselves, where we will speak with the employer, identify who we are, and give credibility that we are truly a representative of the city, that the employers are then much more willing to share information uh, about the applicant, understanding this is in order to determine if they are qualified uh, for a position in the city. And um, that is why we knew we had to put out an advisor immediately. Now, keep in mind with everything going on and ex expediting hiring, the question is still coming up. Why do we still have to verify minimum qualifications, especially if it's for a high level position where uh, people may no longer have their bachelor's degree around because they've been working as an executive for so many years? Um, it just shows how we must be consistent, no matter if it's an entry level position or a high level uh, management position. And it's also to show the public who we are truly working for, uh, that we are taking it very seriously that when we go about hiring qualified people, it's not because we know them personally, it's not because they're a family member, it's because we truly checked records to ensure that they had the knowledge, skills, and experience to perform the work on the first day of the job. And we knew that when we talked about minimum qualifications, we were going to have to add the portion about the non-contemporaneous documentation. And Commissioner Favetti, you are correct. MTA has shown us how much more work we need to do in working with our supervisors and hiring managers because there are times when work may cross over. Intentionally or in, unintentionally, I do not know, but there are times we've seen that and I'm referring to um, our trades individuals who uh, sometimes do body work, sometimes do electrical work, and sometimes it seems to cross over. And what we're seeing is that our appellants coming in sincerely believe they are doing the work. They are just not in the classification that normally performs the work. These are the things we need to look at. As, as supervisors, we need to take responsibility. If we know for a fact that this work is not 
normally performed by this classification, but due to vacancies and the urgency affecting transportation, we must get the work done. We need to make a practice of documenting that and even acknowledging, although it should be this classification, this is the situation we were in and we had to get the work completed. Otherwise, transportation would be affected throughout the whole city. Um, better, and we're trying to encourage even our unions to have open conversations with each other that there may be times that things may cross over or can we work together to develop apprenticeship programs. So putting together this civil service advisors actually is opening doors to many other conversations we are having, not only looking at uh, racial equity, about looking at our current employees and many of them are performing work, especially I can speak in, from experience in a small department. All our staff is cross-trained because it only takes one person to be absent that day that we cannot halt the work. It needs to be continued. All our staff needs to be trained. Okay, where would Sandra put this? Who was she talking to? They would need to be able to look up these records so to follow up with individuals so we can get an answer for that employee who's standing in front of our office hoping for an answer who does not know where else to go because we are a resource for them. Same with the unions. If there are any unions in the, here in the room right now, they can vouch for themselves how many times they've called our office, figuring out what is the right way. And many times it involves minimum qualifications. So we knew this advisor had to go out. And Commissioner Favetti, you are correct that when it comes to contemporaneous and non-contemporaneous documentation, they're still referring to our old advisor talking about out-of-class assignments. And it's referred to much, but what we like to do is have to, something clear in writing. So we welcome your suggestions if you think it should be in two advisors, but we definitely know there needs to be something clear to outsiders and to people who are not working in HR. What is it that we are verifying in minimum qualifications? What documents are acceptable? Um, Vice President Favetti. And if it supersedes other advisors to make that note, and I also want one other comment. I am so glad that you are tackling exempt and civil service employment appointments and the requirement for minimum qualifications, because we normally sort of separate those apart and keep them apart. And this brings it right down to the forefront. So it's all focused. So I just want to make that other comment. Um, I also want to appreciate the work. Um, I believe this is the first civil service advisor I've seen since I've been on the commission and you indicated it's the first one in five years. So that <laughs> reconciles with my recollection. Um, this over the, over the course of the last couple of months, you know, we've been talking about the rules and clarifying the rules and simplifying the rules. And of course, as we have modified our website, um, and been instructed to uh, write for a fifth grade education, that's in everybody's mind. Can we, can we simplify as we clarify? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that this is an excellent start. It's an area um, that through appeals and our hearings, we know uh, that there are lots of concerns and questions about and uh, so what I would ask is, can we make it a self-contained document? And so um, 
the the reference in the advisor as it's currently drafted to rules as otherwise stated in the rules? Can we eliminate that? And if there's an applicable rule, indicate what that rule is so that anyone who picks up this document can immediately go to, you know, the rule that you're citing. And, and so the question of simplifying and maybe that is creating to advisors or just taking, you know, kind of a hard pencil to how do you create a document that's not for your peers, but for applicants, um, both city internal applicants as well as external applicants to help them understand what the MQs are and this question of contemporaneous and non-contemporaneous uh, documents. So, you know, I really support the suggestion of we, uh, we start with this draft and let's see if we can tighten it up make some changes as per the discussion here and uh, and bring it back to the commission. Thank you. Thank you. Um, commission concurrence that we will, uh, our deputy director will bring this back. Um, we should take public comment. Uh, there's been a, a pretty, uh, ripe discussion. So we will take public comment on the uh, agenda item and the presentation by Deputy Director uh, Holmes. Um, Hi. Ms. Barrows. Yeah, I'm Brenda Barrows again. And uh, thank you, it sounds good so far. But uh, something you need to take into consideration, and this is just, I can give you an example of a recent situation. I know somebody who just applied for 2903. This lady has been trying to become a 2903 for years. So then they told her finally that she needed a letter. Now, I have supervised her for exactly two months. Somebody else had supervised her for a couple of years. I supervised her a long time ago before I got deployed. I got deployed with COVID. So then they turned it over to somebody else. Now she went to the person that has supervised her the longest and she refused to write her a letter. So, so, so I don't know what can be done about that, but you have people for whatever reason refusing to give people these letters. And I, I've said it for myself, I've been an employee for over 40 years and no way does what's in my evaluation really show what I've done. And it's very difficult to get the employers to admit that they're having you do things that you shouldn't be doing. And they know you shouldn't be doing it, but they needed that. So uh, I, I think that needs to be taken into consideration and there needs to be something, something done so that managers cannot refuse to give people letters about what they've been doing. They should not be allowed to refuse to give it to you if they were your supervisors. Uh, thank you very much for those comments. Ms. Thornton. Hi, um, Cheryl Thornton. So I've been a city employee for 25 years and I was in a position for many years that I was um, performing duties far above the job classification. And this position that this advisor you're talking about bringing back that hasn't been around for five years, I don't know what it did previously 
but I was one of these people who worked out of class for many years and I, 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 I lost money because of it. My retirement was impacted. Um, the second thing I want to say is acting assignments. There is really no rules around acting assignments. And there are people in the department that are performing duties but are not given acting assignments. There's no clear and fair process um, for employees to even apply for these acting assignments. And then lastly, I want to say is the performance appraisal. Why isn't the civil service holding these departments accountable? They're not even doing the performance appraisals for that. Uh, at that time, that's where some of this, uh, these assignments, these uh, out of class assignments should be in the performance appraisal. But we can't even get half the time performance appraisals or accurate ones. And there's not any recourse for the employee. So in my mind, you know what this is? Slavery, free labor. And many times, I bet you, if you go through uh, the employees, a lot of black and brown people have been working at higher classifications, holding degrees, and the city and county benefiting off of their free labor, and they are not ever compensated for their labor. So it's one thing to get this advisor, but it's another thing to hold people accountable. And we need to know how the commission is going to hold these departments accountable for people who are working out of class and giving free labor, because we are tired of being enslaved. So thank you. Thank you for your comments. Are there any additional comments? Yeah, Steve Zeltzer again, um, Work Week in the United Front Committee for Labor Party. One of the issues that is going on in the city and county of San Francisco is you have workers who are not public workers doing the same work as public workers. They're from nonprofits and they're from consultants. They're doing similar work. How could that be? How could you be working next to a worker, if you're a public worker, who's paid 30, 40% less, who doesn't have the same benefits? I think that is outrageous and I think we have to have equal pay for equal work. If you're doing public work, you should get the same work as the same pay as public workers. And what does that leave within the city and county of San Francisco if you're working with somebody and they're paid 30% less, 40% less without the benefits? What kind of atmosphere is that for workers in the city and county of San Francisco? I would say it's a bad atmosphere. And we've seen in industry when you have two tier agreements in the airlines, it's detrimental to the service of the public because you have anger and frustration, people feel they're being mistreated and they are being mistreated. So we should do an examination of how many workers in San Francisco are doing public work but not getting public workers paid to find out what the real situation is in the city and county of San Francisco. I find it abominable and it's something that has to change. Thank you for your additional public comment. Any additional public comment? Elizabeth, any public comment on the telephone? Uh, yes, we do, President Miner. So I'm going to unmute the caller. Caller, please state and spell your name for the record. It's Patrick Manetsaw. You have the spelling of my name and emails I've sent to the executive director. I was not going to. I was not prepared to speak on this item, but I need to share with the commission. 
that I worked at Laguna Honda for a decade as a classification 1446 Secretary 2 until Department of Public Health eliminated that job classification code simply to suck me up from writing my newspaper articles after hours and on weekend using my personal member rights. So they eliminated that job code throughout DPH, and you should restore that job class because now you have clinicians performing clerical work. When I worked there for a decade, I helped develop a Microsoft Access database to track patient records, patient assessments, to help clinicians remember when to do their patient assessment. In addition, I had to become essentially a billing clerk working out of my job classification code because the billing clerk was too busy playing his guitar to entertain patients. I recovered over $200,000 for that hospital from missing Medi-Cal reimbursement by working out of class, and you need to reinstate 1446s to Department of Public Health to keep clinicians treating patients and not performing clerical duties. This uh, problem throughout the city of having workers work out of job class has gone on far too long. And this commission, I'm talking to you, FX Crowley, need to get this problem fixed now. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your comments. Any additional comments, Elizabeth? No further public comment at this time, President Minor. Okay, so we've concluded this discussion. Uh, Deputy Director Holmes, when do you believe you'll be bringing this item back? Thank you for the question. I can bring it back to second meeting in October. Thank you. Executive officer, we're ready for the next agenda item. Item seven, Civil Service Commission fiscal year 2022 through 23 year end report. Recommendation, adopt the report. Uh, thank you. Will you be presenting? Um, I will try to be uh, brief and just uh, point out uh, some things that have stood out. And perhaps that's why our department is doing much more training than ever before. Uh, first, just to the background, how policy bodies have been uh, conducting their meetings have changed drastically with the pandemic. And we are very fortunate that our commission um, chose to continue with the hybrid meetings. It, it really has provided opportunity uh, for accessibility and also it has benefited our employees 
uh, versus having to come into in person waiting for the item to be heard. They can join virtually while uh, performing other work duties in the office. Um, I have to say that many, especially our personal service contract coordinators have really appreciated that. And at the same time, our HR analysts, I saw also shared that it has been very helpful for them. But in conducting hybrid meetings, obviously it takes the full staff to be involved. So that part has changed. And I have to say there are no complaints. It's we just um, have learned to spread ourselves much more. So if people are coming into the office, there's a note right away to let them know we may not be able to answer the door right away because our host is actually uh, hosting the virtual side, the WebEx side of the meeting. Well, the reason I bring this up is that other policy body secretaries have been going either to the mayor's office or the city administrator's office asking for help or what is it that we can do because it's very difficult. And that's how um, our office was asked to share about what is it we do in our office that we are able to not only run the office, but also conduct a hybrid meeting in person and virtual at the same time. So that is why I am bringing this up that um, our employees and the public do appreciate that they can still uh, call in or listen to the meeting call in because before we could not ever uh, afford, I forgot how many thousand they taught us SFGovDV to, to film live and we could not afford this. This is another, how do you say, an alternative that the commission was able to make available. Um, the other thing I want to point out in our year end report, uh, really much more on our appeals and hearings and our inspection service requests. As you recall last year, uh, our numbers were extremely low in the number of appeals resolved and also in the number of inspection requests resolved within 60 days to the point that the commission began asking for quarterly reports. We re reviewed our appeals process scheduling and um, I'm going to say that Incredibly so within the year, it has changed dramatically and a lot has to do without us realizing it is that there are many departments that are listening to our commission meetings, hearing the concerns of the commission. And that's why I want to go into detail um, about our appeals because although um, our goal is resolving 70%, we were able to reach 68% uh, in resolving appeals and it's actually very high. The reason being is that we received a total of 96 new appeals and requests for hearings in fiscal year 23. And it's really a 129% increase compared to new appeals received in fiscal year 2022. And not only the commission was able to resolve 97 of the 142 pending appeals. So, that I want to bring up right away is that um, although we had set a goal of 70%, what has changed dramatically is the number of appeals that came pouring in. Of course, DHR realizes that a number of those appeals coming in had to do with the 48th supplement, right? The disqual and disqualification of other matters. But because the commission heard the proposal on how to change 
uh, uh, the rules to amend to include the 48th supplement for that temporary period. It was actually our commissioner Fivetti who proposed that this be an appealable matter. And from that, we learned so much about the 48th supplement also through our inspection service requests, because if they had already passed the deadline to uh, appeal for disqualification, we also reviewed the matter. And we quickly learned that uh, the mayor's intention was to quickly hire as many people as possible, especially those who had been in the CAT 18 position for at least one year. But because of the appeal process and because of the inspection service, we it opened the door to so many stories that we heard from employees who had been in CAT 16, CAT 17 positions for even before COVID started, who were performing the work. And it was continuous because the mayor allowed them to go past the charter duration. And it became clear to our office that there were many CAT 16, CAT 17 people who were just as qualified, but they did not fall into the minimum qualification requirement of the 48 supplement. And that's why I say this is so much we learn from this because this is something we can share with the mayor's office about. There's something we need to consider here because we had people who were CAT 16, 17, the moment the pandemic started, there was no vaccine, but these people were ready to work, performing the work. And when they saw that there was an opportunity for that employees, and they used the word transition by this examination, then when they received this uh, letter saying they were disqualified, they could not understand why. And they've provided us documentation. But we knew because of the 48th supplement, they had to be specifically in a CAT 18 position for one year. And so, uh, how do you say, the city learns from all of this. There are many things we learn from going through the state of emergency, but this is something we need to consider, especially when we need to hire right away. And I'm also bringing up uh, the one appeal that we heard where the employee, if they did not appeal, the CAT 18 disqualification, we would have not heard the other side of the case realizing they should have been appointed into a CAT 19 position all along. In fact, what that did was open the door up for the department to realize they were hiring many people into CAT 16 positions and they were part of a list um, going through uh, DHR trying to find CAT 19 positions. The department could not offer CAT 19 at the time, but these employees have been working for more than a year. They were never released. And even if the department stated, well, we need it, we were required to have so many of these employees, especially in the Department of Public Health, but it's also telling us, and we heard ourselves from the appeal, hiring managers were working with these individuals. These individuals were learning, they were gaining valuable skills. But the only reason we knew about it was because they had the ability to appeal the CAT 18 disqualification portion of it. So um, I bring that up to you that uh, we, yes, we're at 68%, not the 70% resolve. But when you look at what has happened in this past year, what we've seen from the appeals, and even with the EEO appeals, 
uh, we had pending about 30, 15 were resolved, but then we had another 15 added on. So it may look as though, why do we still have so many EEO appeals? But EEO division has been doing incredible work in terms of working with departments. And remember, we already heard from what's happening in the departments. They're understaffed, there's change of management, and those are the same challenges are going on with DHR EEO, but suddenly we're seeing what the work they have put in in trying to uh, resolve these appeals, schedule these right away, and all of their staff are keeping in contact with both uh, the executive officer and the deputy director continuously, so we're in the loop. I would say the most difficult one, as you will see in the appeals, has to do with future employee restrictions. Um, we have a total of 43 requests to hear future employment restrictions. There were 19 new requests, and unfortunately, only 21 uh, were uh, resolved in fiscal 20, fiscal year 23. And yes, as I had explained previously, uh, many of that had to do with uh, litigation, grievances, arbitration, and then uh, change in management. Uh, where our, our new HR managers taking on the role of pending uh, appeals from before, focusing only on the litigation and side of it and arbitration, not realizing there was a pending appeal. So at our last meeting, when we came up with uh, recommendations on what we can do to expedite the scheduling of these appeals, uh, and as you can tell, we had some great ideas. The commission made some edits. So departments are already emailing me before I return to the office at the end of a commission meeting, telling me the status of their appeals, which shows that departments truly want to be timely. They want to be on the ball and they do appreciate that even uh, the civil service commission office will also help with sending out reminders before the due date a staff report is due. And we're also working with uh, the DHR management on pending reports that may still need our human resources director's final approval. So I do want to point these things out to you, even with the uh, inspection service request, it's very difficult to investigate uh, a concern when they say we're disqualified because it had to do with the 48th supplement, or some have brought up uh, the challenges they had using the smart recruiter system, meaning they did respond to the notice of inquiry, but they still did not get the invite or they did submit the application, but the records on our side do not show that. That is beyond civil service commission's jurisdiction. But I do want to point out, this also happened with the previous application system we had, where we could only validate we sent the information out the applicant and the applicant was not able to validate they indeed uh, sent in uh, their application or responded to a notice of inquiry one case i do want to bring out is that one applicant who happened to be an internal candidate happened to use their work email address to respond they were probably the only applicant that I'm aware of that was able to get their Department of Technology to investigate, to prove to the city that indeed 
the person never uh, received the, uh, the notice of inquiry or the invite into the interview, although we were able to show we sent it out. Uh, the department's IT were able to show that the, the applicant, who is an employee, never received the email from us. But that's not, realistically, that's not something we can control with people using their personal email system. I just wanted to give you examples on some of these investigations, um, how it can be difficult to, to provide an answer to the complainant. The other thing that we want to point out to is um, we are still having uh, difficulty getting response from departments um, in terms of responding to an inspection service request. So um, we knew that there are new there are new divisions within some departments, and um, the word that spread out very quickly because. As soon as a couple of managers had asked us to do a training, um, I am now getting emails galore asking, can they all jump in on this training? And it's all new analysts, new managers wanting to know more. And even the unions are also in, inviting us to see if we can speak at their meetings. We're hoping that the more we collaborate with the unions and the HR managers, we can get the word out about how, whether it's preparing a staff report or presenting before the commission or uh, responding to inspection service requests, that this really could be done in a timely manner and it's not something to dread. And yes, we plan to have templates for them to make it easier for them. But um, I just wanted to share year end. It's been an incredible year. The things that we have learned, but we've seen it also in the departments. We've seen it in DHR and MTA. The changes that, and there's still more changes to come. Um, Executive Officer, thank you. Thank you for the work that has gone into uh, this year in report and for your uh, presentation to the commission. Uh, we will now open up for commissioner uh, comments, uh, suggestions, edits, questions. Uh, commissioner Salveson. Thank you. Um, I just had some questions on um, attachment B, which is the list of the appeals. I couldn't discern how that was organized. Can you? Summarize or, you know, the order in which this is presented, what the organizing principle was. Um, you're, you're referring to the attachment? Attachment B. Okay. So, um, what happens is that first, uh, the, the log itself, there is, um, the separations appeals are at the bottom of the chart and position-based testing. The exam, uh, anything to do with examinations um, are all mixed in at the top. And what, when you look at the second column where it says type, that will tell you right away uh, by the number whether it is an examination, uh, a discrimination appeal, classification, and so forth. I was wondering whether within categories, whether they're organized according to 
how old they are time in the time frame. It didn't, it didn't look like any of the dates were sequential. So. You are correct. It is not organized by timeline. It is actually in alphabetical order. We, uh. Remove the appellants names on there and that's why I apologize. I can now see why it would be difficult to understand what the pattern is. It is by the appellants name. So whenever we have to look up a status or the appellant is contacting us, we can look up their information very quickly. Okay, I think in the future, it would be helpful to. Um, you know, organize, I would like to see an organization. Right, which, which groups have been resolved. <laughs> Which groups are awaiting a department report? Which groups are on hold pending something like a grievance or litigation? And then other or whatever, you know, you, you guys can go into it. But I think in terms of what the commission is interested in looking at and seeing how, how it's going and how the appeals are um, being processed or whether they're going um, in a timely manner, it would be helpful to have it in an organization like that and within that within each category kind of basically you know oldest to to newest so we see what are the oldest ones and mm -hmm. maybe the date they come in or whatever something like that that'd be my suggestion uh vice president favetti i agree with commissioner salveson and, and in the interest of time i do have a couple that i was hoping that we could follow up on not today but in the future um and i'll just read out the numbers okay uh, unfortunately, I've uh, uh, anyway. So it's 0085 23 4, 0176 22 6, 0018 19 6, 0075 19 7, 0010 21 7, 0157 22 7. 0015 23-7, 0035-23-7, 0136-16-7, 0005-21-7, 0046-21-7, 0194-21-7, 0125-21-7, and 0180-20-7. A um, number of those are more than a couple of years old, and it looks like the majority are of um, future employment uh, issues. Um, but other than that, uh, and I do agree with the uh, suggestions that Commissioner Salveson made, because I understand that you don't want to have the appellant's name here. And so in that view, it would be good to be able to organize it in a little uh, different way. Commissioner Fetty, so um, of the appeals you listed, you would like us to provide a report back on the status? Yep. Okay. Because although there was some check-in maybe in May or even earlier, uh, it doesn't look like um, there was either a response. But I was also concerned at the, um, in particularly some cases, how long the appeal has been um, out there. Uh, in some cases, I think there's a resolution of a, re a settlement agreement earlier in the 23 and no status. So if there was a settlement agreement, uh, that should be resolved, but uh, it would be just good for follow up. Other than that, unless there, oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 please go ahead. I was just going to make a motion. Is that 
Um, I have a couple of comments. Mm -hmm. um, again, thank you for the work. Um, very good uh, summary and um, we can see that we've been uh, quite busy with uh, a lot of uh, collaboration with um, DHR. Um, just a, a couple of one, one simple typo uh, that actually should be corrected on page five. Um, in the, uh, the section that's called CSC new website, May 23, uh, that should be 22. And then um, a couple of things that I think would be helpful to reference in the report. Um, in the section on uh, rule, rule amendments, policies, and procedures, um, I'd like a, I'd like to see us reference uh, May 15 uh, hearing on um, to hear proposals from members of the public, but specifically uh, HR directors and managers on role changes that may expedite hearing, uh, may expedite hiring. And then um, the second one is, uh, you know, technically the grand jury report, which was quite significant, was issued in the fiscal year. And even though our response was due later, I think a reference to it is probably important. And then we track it, uh, including the responses um, by this commission uh, in the next um, annual report. Thank you. Um, so I think we're now ready for a motion. I wanted to thank you. It's an excellent report. It's very thorough and congratulations on the year. It's well received and that I would move to adopt the report. With the uh, follow up on the different appeals and the other changes that were uh, the amendments that were recommended. Second. Okay. We have a motion and a second to adopt the report, which is the 2223 year in report for the commission. If you're in the room and you have public comment on the report, you may come to the podium now. If you're on the telephone, please press star three. President Minor, no public comment at this time. Thank you. Commissioners, the roll call vote on the motion, which is the motion to adopt the report, our year in report, subject to the changes discussed um, at this meeting. Vice President Favetti? Aye. Commissioner Crawley? Aye. Commissioner Salveson? Aye. And I vote aye. We have uh, adopted the report subject to the changes discussed at this meeting. Uh, thank you. And uh, we're ready for the next agenda item. Item number eight, discussion, discussion on potential updates to the Civil Service Commission's personnel services contract approval process to be more productive and efficient. Recommendation open for discussion. Hey, Executive Officer and our Deputy City Attorney, please tell us how you'd like to proceed. If I could just share the background first for those who may be listening for the first time. Um, 
At the special meeting of June 5th, 2023, the Civil Service Commission received input from departments, employee organizations, and the public regarding potential updates to the Civil Service Commission policy and procedures that was last updated on November 5th, 2014. So the, the report that you see today, commissioners, are not only uh, based on what was shared to the commission in person, but we also had uh, several meetings, and I would say specifically your executive officer has had several meetings through the year during COVID time with our uh, personal service contract coordinators, with uh, DHR, with our contract managers, and there is so much that uh, we have learned that we knew that there was more that we needed to update our policy at the time for myself i was looking at much more about emergency procedures so it is clear so the city has an idea that what may be possibilities um, if a, another emergency like this were to occur but meanwhile, the more I had the opportunity to speak with actually the contract managers, it opened a whole new world on the many other things that they had concerns about in their departments that opened the door for conversations at the possibility of being much more specific and clear in uh, our policy and procedures. So any new person whether it's a department head or personal service contract coordinator, our project managers will understand when is it time that we must obtain CSC approval? Um, do we need to reevaluate uh, the amounts when it we are only to obtain DHR approval? And um, it also brought up the uh, the new. Uh, things that I had not even think about uh, because in the past, in my mind, every time we contract at work, we want to be transparent about it. We want to go through the Civil Service Commission, but I am learning that there are many other areas where in that departments are providing transparency, and there may be times when they are not required to come to the Civil Service Commission. So I thought it was important that if there's a way we could put it clearly in this policy, but that's with the commission's agreement and after hearing the commission's thoughts. So um, we are very appreciative that we have our city attorney, Kate Kimberlin here, who has been working closely with me and also with our, our contract managers. I don't know if they're listening or if they're here in the room, they are very much a part of this. And I have to say to you that our contract managers who oversee all our personal service contracts Whenever I've met with them, it is amazing how much they have paid attention to what we do in the Civil Service Commission, who have complete understanding why the commission requires certain things, but at the same time, who would like to share ideas with us. And that's what the opportunity had with our city attorney's office, the, uh, the contract city attorneys, and we have our government city attorneys. Uh, so it was a very interesting meeting. Plus, we now have, um, the city administrator's office and the Department of Technology looking at our whole new PSC database system. What is something that we can do with this that may not only expedite the process, but make the information much more accessible to the public? Okay. 
So that's the introduction that I just want to make sure for those who may be hearing this for the first time, realize what the Civil Service Commission has been working on. Kate Kimberland, Deputy City Attorney. Um, I'm very excited to have the opportunity to talk about these um, ideas with you. I think it's important to uh, clarify that these are based on, this memo is based on the input that both um, Director, Executive Director Eng and I have received in our capacity working with the departments, um, working with the folks who are doing this on a day-to-day -day basis and seeing in my, from my perspective, the divergence in understanding of the current policy. Um, as you may or may not know, the current policy is just shy of 10 years old and that's not very old in terms of government years, but in terms of the technology and changes to how things work on the contracting side, it, it's an eternity. And I, and also the, turnover and staff in those departments and the folks who are doing this work. And it, I realized very quickly that reading the current policy, it was not in line with necessarily practice or the practice wasn't clearly spelled out in the current policy. And so many of the proposals in this memo don't necessarily reflect changes in policy, but in clarifying existing practice and procedures. Um, the other, there are some potential more significant changes that the commission uh, can make. And I think my role in this process has been to contemplate what has been proposed, what the possibilities are. We looked at what the state of California does with respect to its personal service contracts and to simply advise the commission um, through this memo what it could do legally. Um, it is not necessarily my personal recommendation that it take any particular action that is for the commission and to decide but i'm excited to offer my input in terms of what it can do um and to maybe even think outside the box from what it has done in the past to make this process work more quickly the last thing i will say is that also my my framing has been based on my work with the recovery task force for the city as well this is something that um the city initiated to both speed up hiring um, and contracting, and this is where the two shall meet. So um, it's an exciting thing to be able to try to make it easier to work with the city, both as an employee, but also as um, the contractors. We heard from um, some of our contracting folks back in June when we had the last meeting on this topic that the timeline to contract is far too long. And while the Civil Service Commission only plays a, a role in that timeline and we can't necessarily fix all of those components, I think we can help speed things up and make it easier for everyone to, to follow. Okay. Uh, thank you. So I see there's a slideshow uh, that's, um, that's up. Is there someone going to walk us through the slideshow? Yes, we have the Office of Contract Administration. I believe they were just waiting to see if the commissioner had questions before they continued with their slide presentation. I think we're ready for the slide presentation. I, hi, my name is Tara Namoyed. I'm with the Office of Contract Administration. Can you hear me? No, you can't hear me? Yeah. Okay, hi. My name is Tara Namoyed. I'm with the Office of Contract Administration. Um, in preparation for today's meeting, um, I was asked to put together some slides to give 
uh, everyone a sense or an idea of where um, folks in the public can access city contracting information. Um, and these slides are essentially just a summary of that information. Um, I'm happy to present it now or later on. Now, okay, all right. So, um, as you know, and as the memo states, uh, city contracting involving labor uh, falls under three different chapters. Chapter 21, 21G, which is for grants and nonprofits generally, um, and Chapter 6, which is for construction. This commission only sees the contracts that go before you under Chapter 21, which is just one of three possibilities. So, what I'm going to be showing you today is where you can see those as well as other contracts, including grants, as well as construction. So, I don't know how to do this. So, uh, the topics today, public access to city solicitations through the SF supplier portal, through ServiceNow, through SF Open Book, and then other options as well. <coughs> So, the very first place and probably the most robust place. Just see if it works. Attention. That way it's easier for you. Sorry, I need to wear my glasses, but it's hard to see them with my glasses. Oh, wait, I don't see it. <laughs> there. Oh, right there. Okay. It's right there. This thing. Come on. Okay. From beginning. Just from here, just click on this one. Uh -huh. Okay, see? Yes, all right, great. Thank you. Um, okay, so probably the most robust place to see city contracting information before it's actually awarded is on the SF supplier portal. Um, at this time, uh, all Chapter 21 and Chapter 6 contracts should be publishing their ad departments should be publishing um, their solicitations on this website. Um, I could click on it, but I don't think you actually want me to do a demo right now, but I did provide the link to it. When you go to this website, as you can see from this uh, screenshot, you can see all the different types of contracts that are posted, um, solicitations that are being posted. You can click on the solicitation. You can see all the solicita solicitation documents, the scope of work, um, et cetera. So that's one place that you can see what kinds of solicitations and contracts are going to be awarded in the near future. Might I ask one question? Uh, please, uh, there's a question from Vice President Favetti. Yes. So on the website, this is going to be on SFGov. SF Supplier Portal. Okay. So if I'm just a regular person trying to access this information, what do I do? You click on the link I provided, or you can oh, go to Google and put SF Supplier Portal. Okay. How are they going to know SF Supplier? Um, I think if someone is interested in city contracting, they're probably going to put such terms as like San Francisco city contracting uh, solicitations, something like that, and then they'll get a Google hit, or they can reach out to someone in the city and get the link. But I and think how it's do they reach probably out to easy to city? find. How do they reach out to somebody in the city? Um, I don't know. I can't answer that. Maybe you guys can advertise the site on your website. That, that could be one option. But again, you only review Chapter 21 contracts, so I don't know how much that's going to help the construction or the nonprofits that, that um, receive grants. Okay. So, um, quick question, Taryn. Yes. Wouldn't 311 have that information if I'm calling? I do not know. We can find out if you'd like. I would assume so, since that's what they do, but I, I don't, I can't confirm. But that's likely the case. Thank you. Any other questions? No. Okay. 
Um, so another place that they will be able to, this has not happened yet, um, is through our ServiceNow application. So um, as you know, uh, Civil Service, DHR, are moving to a new online application for submitting PSCs. Um, I think the application that you're using now was developed over 20 years ago. Um, it's pretty outdated. It's pretty limited in its functionality. Um, and so the idea is to take you to a more modernized application. Um, and I believe the city administrator's office is working with DHR and Civil Service Commission to build this new application. The new application is called ServiceNow. Um, we use this application in the city right now for a lot of different uh, Chapter 21 contracting needs, uh, like the CMD programs, uh, com Contract Monitoring Division program. They use it for their um, parts of the part of city contracting. OLSC uses it for their part of the city contracting process. OCA uses it for their part of this o the city contracting process. And so the idea was to bring civil service into this matrix for their part of the city contracting process. Um, ServiceNow, again, it hasn't been developed yet. This is a work in progress. Hopefully in the next, I believe, two to three months, there will be um, something that you will be able to see. Um, ServiceNow is basically a database application and workflow, um, much like probably a lot of applications you've seen online. You go in, you enter data, you, an you answer questions, you do a lot of what you do right now, basically except it's in a different application. And every field is a data field, and every field is reportable. And so basically everything that you enter and everything that you upload can be extracted, and it can be pushed out to wherever you want it to be pushed out to. So if you enter the data, it can be extracted, either raw data as a, in report format, in whatever format you desire, and it will be pushed out to whatever your audience is, whether that's the unions, whether that's members of the public, whoever it is. So it's very similar to, in concept to what you have now, but there's just a lot more functionality available in terms of what you can do with the data that's entered. Um, additionally, once you do move into this new application, you'll be able to create dashboards. I provided a screenshot of what a dashboard is in case um, someone's not familiar with, with that concept. But basically, you can provide dashboards on your website, DHR's website um, that the public can use, user-friendly dashboards that they can use to mine the data, download the data, and do whatever else it is that they want to do with that information. Any questions about that before I go to the next slide? No, we're ready. Um, a third place that you can find information about awarded contracts, so the last two options were essentially before the contract is awarded. But once the contract is awarded, um, the city also has a site, openbook.sfgov.org, which I've provided the link for here, where they also publish contracting data. Now, this is much more detailed data um, in terms of like the contract start date, end date, the supplier, supplier ID, the types of payments that were made to them, their invoices, invoice dates, voucher dates, much more um, in-depth detailed data. I don't know if the average member of the public is interested in that level of detail, but if they are, this is where they could go to find that information. And I provided you the links to the top three um, sections on SF data where you can, open data where you can find contracting information. Any questions? 
Okay, the last place, and actually I shouldn't say the last place, because again, I'm just giving you high level some places where the members of the public can go. Um, another option is department commissions. So many city agencies, awarding contracting agencies have commissions, and those commissions are required to approve their contracts before they are awarded. Whether it's solicited, sole source, or whatever it is, their commission has to review and approve it. So some examples include PUC, SFO, HSA, um, court, et cetera. Um, and I've provided screenshots of all their various websites, but again, if you go to their website, you can find their meeting schedules, their commission meeting schedules, their agendas, the list of contracts that they're reviewing, considering for award, amending, et cetera. So that's another place where you can find awarded contract information. Um, and the last two places uh, for today. So any contract that's over $10 million or 10 years, goes to the Board of Supervisors. So again, if you go to the Board of Supervisors meetings regularly or any of their committee meetings, you'll get to hear about lots of contracts that are $10 million or 10 years. Um, and as well, Ethics Commission also publishes on their website any contract that has $100,000 or more per year, per fiscal year, signed by an elected official, they're also required to report that information. And I provided a screenshot of the kind of information they show. Theirs is actually very well done. Um, you can see all the high level data. You can see the contract description. You can click on it, get more details, and you can also export the data into an Excel file if you wanted to do that. And that's it. Thanks. Uh, thank you, commissioners. Uh, Commissioner Crawley. Uh, through the chair, thank you for your report. Um, I guess I'm going to go to my executive director for this one. Uh, there will still be uh, a long list of union notifications we get with each PSC included in this information. Um, sorry, I, I, we will she, still she, have you. That has not changed. There's okay. still union, definitely union. Thank notification. you. And my second follow-up question, when you're ready, has to do with 21G grants and nonprofits. There was an article that was tendered some weeks or months ago that portended that folks were hired in the city through a grants and bypassed this whole entire process and were paid by gift cards. Are there any audits or conditions thereupon put on folks who are rendered these grants with any kind of oversight? I can speak I can speak on a very limited basis about 21G because my office is OCA Office of Contract Administration and we handle chapter 21 contracts we do not oversee 21G. Um, however, 21G grants are reviewed and approved by commissions. So, yes, there's oversight. So, for example, HSA, if you want to know what oversight they're receiving for the grants that they issue or Department of Homelessness their commissions would be the place to go to get that information for oversight. Um, I'm not familiar with using gift cards to pay for services. I don't think I've heard of that one. Um, I do know that the city does issue gift cards to members of the public in certain cases, like for example, um, DPH, if they've done a test on someone um, who may, may be unhoused and they need them to come back, they give them a gift card, to, or they promise them a gift card to motivate them to come back, but that's not really the same situation here. So, um, I, but I am not familiar with gift cards being used to pay for services. I don't know if. Thank you. 
uh, executive director, I would like to put that on the docket to look at this in the future. Um, I can also speak to the grants process a little bit as well from the city attorney's office perspective. Um, under 21G, which is what grants are issued under, it specifies that um, that those funds should not be used, may not be by definition used for services that are typically done by city employees. And that is um, part of the requirement and approval process. I know our office signs off on every single one of those contracts um, and those grants as to form. Um, and that would generally require us to be looking at those issues. We also have um, the controller's office does a considerable amount of oversight of nonprofits that the city contracts with, and that includes grants. I believe there's currently legislation pending with the Board of Supervisors to add additional requirements for that. Um, but there is also that oversight process through the controller and there um, has been, I think, heightened um, interest in that topic based on some of those news reports. Um, but yes, there are several ways in which those those contracts are reviewed and um, audited. Thank you, Council. No further questions, Madam Chair. Back to you. Okay. Uh, thank you, um, Executive Officer. Um, going back to the recommendations uh, in in the memo that's appended to the agenda, um, I think it would help if. Um, we started kind of systematically walking through the recommendations that are being proposed here and whoever's the lead in that particular area uh, can present to the commission. We can hear questions. Uh, commission, uh, can you hold for a second? Commissioner Salveson, do you have a question before we start that? Yeah, I have kind of an overarching issue. Okay. Which is actually at the beginning of the memo. Uh-huh. Um, which is. The first page talks about clarify the role of the commission in approving personal service contracts um, and in our policy have a succinct explanation of the commission's charter and other legal mandates. I mean, I think that's a great idea and I think that actually is where we need to start in order to understand, you know, our powers and duties with respect to each of these items. Um, you know, my uh, understanding of the charter um, origins of our power to review PSCs uh, may be out of date and it would be good to be updated by our, our current city attorney. But I have, I know that in the, historically, there were some uh, case law in which a court decided that, you know, the city couldn't basically have any contracts, that all the work had to be done by employees. And then over time, there were some uh, propositions or charter amendments designed to cure that. And I think that's kind of what we're operating on, but it's a little bit obscure, um, you know, exactly what, what the source of our power in the charter is. And I think uh, it would be helpful if we could get an explanation of that because, you know, as we know, the charter is kind of like our constitution, the admin code or other code sections are subservient to the charter. And so um, we have to understand our charter powers. Deputy City Attorney. Yes, yes, you can. And thank you for your presentation. But stay around. There may be additional questions. Uh, Deputy City Attorney Kate Kimberlin. Um, I think that's a great question, Commissioner Salveson. <laughs> um, 
the short answer is that you're correct that the charter does frame the basic authority of the commission and it's really general. It doesn't spell out really, it doesn't actually use the term personal service contract. That's not in the charter. It's not actually anywhere in our legislation here in San Francisco. Um, but what the charter does tell us, apologies, I have to take off my glasses to read things now, um, is that it requires the Civil Service Commission to quote, adopt rules, policies, and procedures to carry out the civil service merit system. And that's it. And in terms of what that means, um, that's something that has really been defined through the years in, in case law. And um, at the end of the day, to summarize that case law very basically, uh, it is that the commission has an obligation to protect the civil service merit system, protect the role of employees to do the work that can be feasibly done by city employees and to monitor contracting out of services that could otherwise be done by city employees. And that's, there's generally a two-step process to that concept. Um, the first being to consider whether or not there's any existing service, civil service employees who could do the task at hand or who typically do that task at hand. Um, and if there are not, to consider whether or not it's feasible to establish a class of employees to do that work. And those are the broad questions um, that come before the Civil Service Commission in connection with the work. And so I, I think fundamentally a, a goal of a, of a modified or an updated policy um, isn't to change that standard. That's the standard that existed when this current policy was drafted. It's the same standard, no new, there's been no new, um, landmark cases <laughs> in the last 20 or 30 years, frankly, on this topic. Um, but I think what has become difficult for departments um, to determine is how do they know whether or not it's a service that can be done by city employees? Who makes that decision? Are there broad categories of services that we as a city have determined previously? For example, the current policy spells out um, Prop J contracts. It spells out um, services of the retirement board. It, it spells out that um, health services of, for the health service uh, system. These are things that we don't that don't come before this commission as a matter of policy because at one time or another, the commission, the city, the mayor, the departments have looked at these issues and said fundamentally that is not a function of city government. These are not things that city employees do, and therefore they don't come to the commission. And that's the existing policy, the 2014 policy that's currently in use. And an amended policy could, I think, um, more clearly illuminate what types of um, contracts do fall within the purview of the commission because there are things that could be done by city employees. What kind of considerations the commission can can or should look at when it's determining whether or not a new classification should be established. Um, and really just a guide uh, both the departments and the commission in that analysis, but it's not a change to the law itself. Hope that answers your question. Mm -hmm. I apologize if it was long winded. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Deputy City Attorney. Uh, Commissioner Salveson, follow up? Uh, no, I, I 
accept that um, discussion of the lots. I mean, I I guess it's uh, heartening that I think in our current form for PSCs, we have those standards. So that mm -hmm. we seem to be applying the correct standards. So, um, but um, thank you for confirming that. Hey, uh, Commissioner Crawley. Uh, thank you, Kate. Uh, I'm or counsel. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Kate is fine. <laughs> the issue that I deal with most often with my colleagues here is proprietary in nature. The term of proprietary. I've, there's been examples of you know, equipment and then uh, service contracts wrapped around those service equipments that that may bleed into the crafts or into service. Uh, it's a conundrum. Um, and I want some advice on, on that. I mean, all this is wrapped around. There's an example I, I think I used. There was an application of uh, technical work done on airport trains, but yet the brakes were changed by the same company when I believed uh, their local vendor or service groups or, or trades could do that work. But that would have broken the service agreement that is proprietary with these groups. So I want to take a deeper look and dive into that information. That's my question. I don't expect a, a you know an instant answer to this, but this is what we're facing with new technologies. Um, I'll admit that that's been the most difficult concept for me to grasp as well as I've looked at this issue, um, and I I think what's helped me is to not necessarily look at um, look at it as you know is proprietary software a personal service contract or not. I'm not sure that's really the question that gets us there, or if it's really a question we have to answer. I think um, what we look at is, is it possible for the city employee to do the work? We just go back to those fundamental questions of, is it something that a current class of employees can or cannot do? And if it would cause our warranty for a product that we have purchased to be voided, if it would destroy the product that is the, the purpose of the purchase in the first place, then I think legally speaking, we could say that that is not a service that an employee, a city employee could perform because that's the agreement that we've had to enter into in order to acquire something um, like an internet or an email database. Um, I'm not a technology expert, so I will leave that to them, but I, I try to bring it back to those fundamental questions. Is, is this a, something a city employee can currently do? And if not, why not? And if not, is it something we could have a class of people to do someday? Um, and those may, the answers to those questions may change over time. In fact, uh, as we grow as a city, I, I will add one more fundamental question, which is that simply because we have employees that do particular tasks within the city does not necessarily mean that those people can do that particular job. It's true we have people in the city who do work on technology and could technically perform the task at hand, but I don't think that's the only question we have to ask. We have to look at whether or not it's legal for them to do that task um, and, and what the efficiencies are. Uh, I, I think we also have to, um, you know, consider, yes, the changing times and whether or not it's, it's actually a task that government should do. You know, is it fundamental to the work of government to be engaged in the, in the practice of creating an email database? Um, I don't think anyone would have looked at government and said that's really within our wheelhouse <laughs> to perform that that task. Um, is that something we should be doing? 
Um, and I can't answer those questions. That's not for me to answer, but those are the the ways that I look at this. And I think kind of going back to those questions over and over again, the same questions. Thank you. No further questions, Madam Chair. Okay. Uh, Vice President Favetti. And I just wanted to thank you for uh, your, your thoughts. It was very, very, um, very, I'm glad you started talking about classification because as far as we have always been in, in my experience, it's been based on the whole classification responsibilities of the, of the city and the civil service commission and whether or not we should be assigning a service, a whole classification series on technology was at one time a new classification. There's new types of work that come across and whether or not that it may, in fact, in some cases, I do recall when um, environmental, uh, some of the, uh, it was Billy's uh, program, I'm, I'm blanking on the program, but we started off first by contract and then bringing in in-house, establishing a classification and then a whole body of work and a whole series of classifications for that purpose. With regard to the, and the, the question of proprietary has been a long one. There was, and one of the reasons that we started looking at whether or not that needed to come here is because departments were actually attaching class specs to RFPs on certain technology kinds of classification or contracts. And the city attorney's office said, hey, we need some help. So that goes back a lot of years. Things do change. And I understand that that changes. On the other hand, we have to keep being mindful that on, on an, in addition to being responsive to the situation today, we also have to think about tomorrow and to be flexible and to have a route in the event that we do need to bring these in, that we have that route to take. I am going to say that I had a number of questions on um, the memo and would like to have a little more clarification. Mm -hmm. Is that okay to yes, that? you're ready. Okay, um, and that is primarily in the DHR's role of, um, and we got some public comment, I believe, on this too. And I apologize, I uh, I only have my sunglasses, so I have <laughs> uh, So let me see if I can read my writing. Um, and that has to do with, um, I call it bullet number two on page three, um, and that is, if you could, uh, in fact, on all of these is, could you really provide a little bit more clarification on bullet number two uh, under DHR's role two uh, of approval for PSCs two, three and four. And then on number three, particularly, uh, it says it, and removing the additional seven day posting requirement and having it run have, and have it run concurrently with the timing of DHR's notice to the union. I thought, okay, well, that saves time. But what if, as a result of the discussions, there's a change? Would that need to be? It seems to me that then it's no longer what was posted. And for example, if it was the rules, we would have some kind of posting, some kind of public information about that. So that's that's number one. And the other two, if you could just clarify a little bit more about what you're talking about there. I was a little bit concerned about um, what it meant. So and then then on item number four. Uh, oh, oh, that was number one. I wanted to explore just why aren't we having department because uh, uh, one is uh, and I don't know if we're going to be able to do it this meeting. I'd hate to take all this time. 
but um, maybe for some follow up, it might be follow up um, uh, is number one that's we, we established the annual approval so that it would be, be prior to the budget. And so that what would happen is that the, the scope of work would be approved before the budget actually went before the Board of Supervisors. So that when the Board of Supervisors, if they approved it, the department could hit the ground running and they wouldn't have to come back to the commission. That was the reason for that. Um, so I understand that it's not being used. I understand also, you know, we have a different kind of budget process. What about a biannual? Is it something that the departments are interested anymore in doing? And would that be something that would be helpful? Um, the other, um, if this concept of automatic, and if that could be explored a little bit further about what you mean by that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, because I, I didn't get a really uh, good feeling about the way it was being presented. Um, and, okay, so it was, yeah, so in other words, explore a little bit further about the objection based approach for the Q, uh, pop, pop Q contracts and those, those below 25,000. Why I'm not quite sure why that would even be, I wasn't quite certain why it would be even relevant. I mean, they just get submitted. And if there's no objection, they go forward. So I don't understand what that's about. And then, um, as I explained, the seven day reposting requirement, what happens if they change? And number four is, um, and just to clarify a little bit further about, I, because I had no idea what you're talking about here, um, to be perfectly, I mean, and it's no criticism. It's just, I wasn't sure, I don't know what that's about. And then, and again, further explain what you're talking about as far as automatic approval and how that would play out. And just to be able to see what that would be if we did consider that as part of a change to the overall policy and procedure. Um, and then I'm a little bit disappointed about, because 23 years ago, and I know I've harped on this a thousand times, but 23 years ago, we agreed to continue to publish the contracts because the city said we really don't have a well-organized public access. And I don't mean to be, I, I, truly, I truly appreciate all the effort that's been done, but I am thinking about some folks there on, you know, down there in the community and they're looking at all this contracting work and they said, well, how do I get it? It would be nice if it was a little bit more consideration to the everyday citizen uh, the everyday person in uh, who is going to know this terminology to look up the terminology um, supplier portal. And I, and I appreciate, I, I truly appreciate it, but I would hope that maybe they could call 311. I think that's an excellent suggestion. I know, and I see this contract, da 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 da. Why is this happening? I see da da da. I hear these consents all the time. And it's really interesting now that I have retired and having gotten more involved in community affairs, it's amazing, amazing. I never realized that we were so obtuse as city. I mean, I, I mean, and not I mean in as criticism, but we we get so much wrapped up in our 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 abbreviations and our 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 our, our vocabulary. And you know what? Nobody gets it. 
it's like we got to be we've got to be able to transcend that and contracts hit the everyday lives of everyday people. And so it just seems to me there should be a better way to be able to access that information. The questions are always, you see them on next door, you see them in your community meetings. If you're going to go to a community meeting, you're going to hear about it. If you get a city employee coming to that community meeting, oftentimes they're so involved in their terminology. And although I may understand it, um, you know, it's not necessarily understanding understandable to the everyday person. So I just implore, implore. I would love to be able to give that up. Just love to give it. I would be something I would think, but I would want to be make sure, absolutely certain that the obligation that we took on 23 years ago is as as um, is fulfilled. <laughs> anyway, that's my little rant, <laughs> and I appreciate. I truly appreciate all the work that's gone in here. It's really do I do believe me, but it was been a, it's been an education for me as a former as a city employee to find out what we. Okay, so executive officer, are you going to start responding to um, vice president Favetti? Yes. Okay. Uh, oh, hold on a second. Could I interject just a moment? I was hoping maybe we, it's already 4 o'clock. We have not heard the personal services contracts. I don't know if you want to continue or should we continue this item? I would grab what I was going to say to you, or do we want to go into a full blown discussion further? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Yeah. Um. I, we have, um, yeah, we've got, uh, commissioners, uh, with respect, I say that with respect, would you like to, uh, proceed with this agenda item or continue it, um, to a time when we can have, um, a robust conversation and, uh, clarify next steps. We, we do have a busy agenda. We still have the ratification agenda. We have six DHR reports on the consent agenda. I think some of which will be pulled. We have one hearing. Uh, city attorney, thank um, you. If to, I have no stake in whether we continue it, but I was going to say that if you do want to continue it, it would be helpful to hear any additional questions on the current report, um, like Vice President Favetti just provided, that we could potentially be prepared to address um, at the next time this is calendared. Um, So I, I have a number of questions or need for clarification. Um, but I also think that, um, some, some of my need for clarity is just that the policy is not in front of me and, um, the details are going to be in the policy, you know, um, the questions about. Um, bringing into the city system, the state automatic approval process. What does that actually look like? How would it work? 
um, questions about um, Commissioner Favetti's question about the PSC database and how removing something or other will enable DHR to change limits without coming back to the commission. I didn't understand that at all. Um, so, um, have you started um, actually drafting a new policy? There is a framework, but I don't think we could, I, I was hoping to get the commission's um, input on, you know, whether it was interested in any of these particular policy changes. I think, I think it would be Okay. A version of the policy that updates simply um, doesn't change the policy itself, but brings the current policy into a little bit of an updated format that I don't think really is controversial and leave open the questions of some of the more controversial topics. But as an example, I think that concept of having a automatic approval process like the state, that, that's a pretty significant change, which I would be happy to prepare a draft of. And I'm not sure it's we're at that point that you actually want to see that in the policy. Mm-hmm. So, um, Mm-hmm. But I'm happy to take a stab at it. <laughs> That's what's useful. Okay. So, um, commissioners, how would you like to proceed? Uh, Commissioner Salveson. I was just going to say, if we're going to go through each one of these things, you know, there, it might take a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but so. I'm not sure whether you want to like do it at the end of the calendar and let some of the other things go forward or whether you want to do it now. And I'm happy to do anything. I just want to say that if we're going to go through each item, that there may be, you know, some more time to be spent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Commissioner Favetti. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I would like to have more information first. I mean, I mean, I don't mean to, I know this is going to be another month right, because we don't have another meeting until September, but I would like to know more about what the state system is, what the automatic approval is and have sort of a framework. And there's, you're, you're, you're correct. And some of these, um, they're not real contra- as controversial, but that is, and then. Uh, even the concurrent uh, posting period that needs to be addressed. I think I told you my concerns there. Um, also, just to, for proprietary at 1 time, what we did look at as the, um, the justification. Was whether the service are short term, non repetitive or so specialized and unique. And that's what we used. I forgot to that jogged my memory. Mm-hmm. So. But, um. I, I don't feel comfortable even. You know, you put it in a policy and you don't know what it is. It even in a draft policy. 
it makes it, it's uncomfortable a bit. I mean, I would feel very uncomfortable. Okay. Um, but a draft policy, a framework of a policy. Yeah, uh, Commissioner Favetti, do you? I'm sorry, Commissioner Crawley, how would you like to proceed? Well, given the questions and unknowns, I would suggest that either we move this to the back end of the agenda, perhaps we put some writing back to council in the next week or so of our questions, and then that would give her some idea for a framework. Uh, the framework, send out the framework again and answer those questions the best you can. And then we'll probably still have more questions at the following uh, meeting. If this mm -hmm. can wait, and I certainly mm -hmm. think it can, then we have time to talk to, you know, folks as well. I don't know if that works with my colleagues. Okay. Um, so I think, uh, executive officer. If the commissioners do decide to continue this item, I do want to bring up that. Our next meeting, September 18th, Commissioner Salveson will not be present. And so if we, if the commissioners do decide to continue it, it, I believe October 2nd, maybe the first Monday meeting where we will actually have all five commissioners present. Okay, so, um. Two commissioners um, suggested that we uh, move forward with the agenda at the end of the meeting, look and see how much time we have, have a conversation. Um, it could be a closure conversation or it could be expansive, depending on how late the hour is. Um, but I think. Um, Moving forward to tackle some of the other issues on the agenda at this point uh, makes sense. Um, so, do we do we actually need a motion to? I don't think it's a continuation, but whatever. no, you don't need a motion to. Okay. All right. So the um, and um, with the commissioner, well, we I. I, I think I need to stop and do a public comment um, before. Um, and so, um, even though we have not completed um, our discussions, we will take public comment. Um, members of the public have heard um, from the executive, our executive officer, the city attorney's office, and um, some discussion by commissioners. And so, if you have any public comment, um, or comments you'd like us to hear. I do believe we've received at least one written comment, which would be read into the record. Um, please come forward. If you're in the room, you may come to uh, the podium now. If you're on the telephone, press star three. Um, our deputy director. Uh, okay. Um, thank you, commissioners. I just have um, a Public comment statement from Patrick Monette Shaw. He did call in earlier, but sent this one to be read on the record. The commission should not create an automatic approval process, removing, placing some PSCs on commission agendas. It should not be modeled on the state's PSC system, providing for commission hearings only when the commission receives an objection to a particular PSC. The objection based provisions in the state 
PSC system is a flawed model. DHR should, shouldn't be granted additional unilateral authority to double the value of PSC contracts from 100,000 to 200,000. DHR shouldn't be given objection-based power for all PSCs beyond Prop Q's value to allow an increase from 10,000 to 25,000. Don't remove the policy, the process of entering PSCs into the PSC database to allow DHR to more easily update those procedures separate from the policy. The process of entering data into the PSC database shouldn't be removed, handing DHR carte blanche authority to update its procedures separately from any governing civil service commission policy. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Daniels, we're ready for your comments. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. Um, I just wanted to say from the report, I want to strongly support the clarification of the commission's role in the approval of personal service contracts, especially looking to approval for the types of services being contracted out and focusing on services that can be completed by an existing class. The process now says that it allows for the civil service to ask a department qualifying questions to determine approval. However, when labor is presenting unsubstantiated answers and clearly showing where a department has other means to fill the desired work, the commission doesn't seem to enforce its ability to deny a contract based on its own criteria. The ask is for the commission to engage in conversations with its labor partners to get a full scope of best practices and suggestions to streamline this process while considering potential updates. I can appreciate Commissioner Crowley's concern about gift cards being used to pay for contracted out services, but what is more of a concern is when work is contracted out as a backup plan instead of putting all the financial resources of the contract into robust hiring of permanent civil service workers. Thank you. Will you Thank please you. identify yourself for the record? For the record, Naj Daniels Thank with you. SEIU. Thank you. She was taking advantage of the fact that I identified her <laughs> in personal clients. Okay. So uh, I'm Brenda Barrows, and, and I'm also opposed to automatic approval um, and automatic increases. Um, as a public health worker, what we, we have been seeing is contracts growing. We see work that is done by our people, and I've used the RNs as an example where permanent RN requisitions are decreasing while registry is off the chain. And I see that happening now in radiology and it keeps happening over and over and over. That's clearly work that can be done by people who are city employees. Yet somehow more, more money keeps going into contracting and less and less goes into hiring permanent people. So uh, it's difficult for employees to trust that, you know, these automatic approvals when we see this over and over and over again. I mean, another contract is with um, a health care plan that sees primary care people. Clearly, we have a primary care system, but yet we put an awful lot of money into this outside entity primary care group. So uh, it's very difficult, at least for us, for public health, to, to support anything that's automatic 
that doesn't have oversight that uh, that somebody else's eyes is not on. Because it's too simple to just say, well, we'll just have more registry. We don't have to worry about hiring. We'll just make the registry bigger. And, you know, I, I called City Hall about this. And someone at City Hall told me they, that's what I heard from City Hall. Um, all of the money that DVH is asking for registry is for registry. It's not for permanent employees. So they want to increase this huge amount, the amount of money that's being spent on registry. And that means that they're not going to be city employees. So, um, and they're not here. And that bothers me too, right? I've not seen them come before you guys. So where are these contracts that are at this huge amount of money I heard? Where are they? And why are they not before this commission? And why don't we know what's in them? Uh, thank you. Hi, my name is Cheryl Thornton, and I'm opposed to automatic um, renewals for the contract. And then the um, second thing I think was automatic. Um, oh, I forgot what the other thing was. But what I want to say is I work in public health and I see a lot of our services being contracted out and they're not congruent um, as far as billing with our services. So like case in point, I work at a 230 Golden Gate and we have patients that have to go, let's say to the methadone clinic. So their insurance is aligned with us, but when they walk over to this methadone clinic, they take different coverages. So we're playing this back and forth game all the time, trying to align the insurance so we get payment. So I guess my point is, is that a lot of times these contracts, these that um, in these nonprofits, it's not congruent with our payment plan with the city and county. So now we're losing money for um, services that are rendered. So I would think that the purpose of this contracting out would be to enhance services, not to destroy them. And that's what I actually see every day when I'm trying to realign assurances back so that the city can um, get reimbursement for the services that they are rendering. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Uh, any additional comments? Um, Elizabeth, any comments on the telephone? Yes, President Miner, we have three callers, so I'm going to unmute the first one. Okay, thank you. Caller, please state and spell your name for the record. Okay, it's Patrick Manetzaw, but reading the written testimony I uh, submitted for inclusion in the minutes should not take away my right to present oral testimony right now. So, departing a bit from my prepared oral testimony, let me just back up and uh, mention that you really do need to continue this agenda item until October. Um, I noticed that on the personal service contract form number one that this commission uses, although you do ask if, in one question, if the services being proposed have been covered by a previous 
TFC contract, you do not ask the city departments to tell you which uh, actual contracts that were awarded by a border commission under a PSC uh, uh, approval number. For example, on June 5th, Laguna Honda asked for $18 million in a new PSC. You awarded it to them, even though they had a vague answer about whether it had been covered under previous PSC contract numbers. And I can tell you from my research, uh, the four contractors Laguna Honda hired under four separate PSC numbers uh, eventually awarded $30 million in actual contracts that they didn't even tell you about on their June 5th form and asking for $18 million more. And I can guarantee you the work is duplicative, and the Civil Service Commission needs to develop a procedure to bring back in October about reviewing the previous PSC authorization numbers against actual contracts awarded to see if they're just sneaking around and duplicating um, the same uh, services to be provided under a new PSC uh, approval authorization number. You guys need to fix this huge problem. Caller, please wrap it up. You, you have used your three minutes. We'll let you complete okay. your sentence. Okay, my sentence is thank you for listening to this, but you guys really need to get a handle on examining actual contracts awarded under a previous PSC number before you grant departments a new PSC number to essentially do duplicative work. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Next caller, please. Caller, please Good state afternoon, your Sure. Sorry. My name is Kim Thompson, K-A-M-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. Uh, good afternoon, commissioners. I am the San Francisco Vice President of IFPTE Local 21, a principal IS engineer with the Department of Technology, and a career city employee with over 30 years in public service at the city and county. Regarding the pro proposed updates to the city's personal service contract approval process, we are really disappointed and concerned to learn that the city is attempting to establish an automatic approval process that will allow departments to contract down our work. This would be a significant departure from the existing process that has oversight from the Civil Service Commission, and this oversight is key to establishing accountability from the requesting departments. Anything less than that would be a disservice to city workers. I'd also like to remind the commission that a civil grand jury report recently called out the city's hiring crisis with a list of recommendations to expedite filling permanent vacancies, as well as improve employee retention and succession. These recommendations did not call on the city to get better at outsourcing our jobs. The report recognized the number of permanent vacant positions has more than doubled since 2020. With this 
unprecedented number of critical vacant positions citywide that still need to be filled, it's deeply troubling to learn that the city's effort is being spent on improving contracting out instead. The attempt to make it more efficient for departments to contract out our work reflects poorly on the city's priorities. If we spent this time on improving hiring practices and filling vacancies, we could have a fully staffed workforce and city services to be proud of. During the Civil Service Commission special meeting on June 5th, several of, um, of you asked if any outreach was being made to labor unions to discuss these potential changes. But unfortunately, no one from city administration has contacted Local 21 or solicited any feedback from us. Considering the significance and impact of the proposed changes um, and what they would, um, the impact they would have on our bargaining unit's work, it's important that our union is included in these discussions. We urge city administration to talk to labor sooner rather than later so we can have a we ask the commission to consider, are these contract process changes truly reflective of the values we uphold in San Francisco? On behalf of our members, we ask that the city prioritize the current hiring crisis, not make it easier to form out our jobs to private companies. A permanent, dedicated public service workforce is the solution to providing the excellent city services that residents deserve and respect. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your comments. Next caller, please. Caller, please state and spell your name for the record. I think you unmuted me and I just spoke. Hear me? Yes. Hello? Yes, caller? Yes, yes we can. Claude Joseph, um, C-L-A-U-D-E, Joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H. Um, I'm calling with SCIU um, Local 1021. Uh, 10-1 would like to express concern about the request for a rubber stamp in regard to these personal um, service contracts. Um, one of our concern is that a lot of these contracts that are being requested are positions that SCIU Local 1021 um, members perform. Uh, and the other concern that we have is the possibility, at worst, for abuse, monetary abuse, uh, at best, uh, wasteful spending. Now, I have two examples of contracts that's been coming to our desk, two contracts that came to my desk uh, specifically that we ask our DPH department to meet and confer over. And when we raised one specific, one simple question, they rescinded both contracts. Now, what is that question? We have one contract for $20 million for five years for three positions that is performed by, the, by SCIU Local 10 to 1. Now, each of these positions is performed at $160,000 top per position per year. Now, when you analyze these numbers, $20 million, five years, three positions, that's $1.3 million per position per year. These numbers did not make sense. When we raised the question, that contract was rescinded. Now we have another $45 million contract, seven position. When we analyze those numbers, $1.2 million per position per year for positions that should be performed at, at most, with perks and benefits, $260,000 a year. Now, I appreciate the fact that the commission is asking questions about, you know, um, 
what civil service or, or the charter gives you in terms of authority over these contracts, the commission should be asking for more oversight rather than to give away a rubber stamp where the city authorities could just approve these contracts at will. One, it will damage our relationship. It's, it's going to contract out works that is performed by SPI Local 10 to 1 and other unions. Now, in these same contracts, there's a question in these contracts that, that's asked, can these duties be performed by city employees? Whoever's putting these requests together is answering it by saying it's already being performed by city employees at maximum capacity. Now, that's not accurately representing what is going on, because at meet and confer, we raised the question, well, how many unfilled positions that we have in these positions? Tons of unfilled positions. We have another contract that I want to give you an example about, where they are contracting out 12 positions. Ten of these positions are already filled. Now, we should be asking more questions about these contracts instead of giving a rubber stamp for the city to just willy-nilly approve whatever contract that they see fit. Thank you. Thank you for your public comment. Uh, do we have additional public comment, Elizabeth? President Minor, no further public comment at this time. Okay. Um, Executive Officer, we have agreed we will move to the next agenda item, which is the ratification agenda. On the ratification agenda, all matters on the ratification agenda are considered by the Civil Service Commission to be non-contested and will be acted upon by a single vote of the commission. There will be no separate discussion on these items unless a request is made, in which event the matter shall be removed from the ratification agenda and considered as a separate item. Item 9, review of request for approval of proposed personal services contracts, recommendation of the human resources director, adopt the report, approve the request for proposed personal service contracts, notify the office of the controller and the office of contract administration. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, commissioners, um, the ratification agenda, please indicate if there are any uh, PSCs that you would like pulled from the ratification agenda for individual discussion. If you would give me um, the department name and the PSC number. Vice President Favetti. I have none. Uh, Commissioner Crawley. Uh, 40791-2223 elections. Okay. And uh, Commissioner Salveson. Uh, after reviewing all the PSC requests and noting there are no objections, I did not find any to pull. Thank you. Um, we are ready for a motion and a second to approve the ratification agenda minus 40791-2223 Department of Elections. So moved. Second. We have a motion to approve the ratification agenda minus the pulled contract. If you have public comment on the motion, if you're in the room, you may come to the podium. If you're on the telephone, press star three now. President Minor, no public comment at this time. Thank you. Commissioners, the roll call vote to approve the ratification agenda minus the one pulled the contract. Vice President Favetti. Aye. Commissioner Crawley. Aye. Commissioner Salveson. Aye. And I vote aye. We have approved the ratification agenda. 
um, departments, uh, thank you for being present. And we have one pulled contract, which is the Department of Elections 40791-2223. Who is with us from the Department of Elections? Good afternoon, John Arns, Director of Elections. Thank you for being here. Mm -hmm. Commissioner Crawley. Hi, Mr. Arns, thank you. Thank you for doing a good job for the uh, city and county of San Francisco. My question is, uh, do you do not have the personnel package to service? You contract and expand during times. You do not have the services in-house to provide this service? Not to this level that we're asking for through, through this contract. We, we can do some design work. Uh, we do reach out to vendors for advertising. We do put together advertising strategies th through the elections. Um, but for us, it's a it's a big reach to do that for each cycle and also the 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 quality of the product also that we can do in-house is not up to the level that we can get potentially from a vendor through this contract then also if we were to contract out these services we also expand uh the the campaigns we can do in off election cycles uh, for instance right now we're doing a campaign to encourage people to move from the paper voter information pamphlet to the digital version of the voter information pamphlet. I mean, for us to do this in-house, to go through all the steps, to get a strategy together, to get the, to put together the, 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 the content, uh, to, to leverage any sort of advertising, to, to do any sort of research within the community, that just takes up a lot of time and effort with people who aren't really experienced in that. And we do have turnover in those positions uh, that are involved in outreach and our outreach di division is three people and we do expand out to a larger number of people for the elections but their temporary is needed and they're only there for the uh, for the election cycle then we, we separate them uh, so yes we can do some elements of this to a certain degree but i don't think especially going into a presidential cycle and also wanting to expand out the types of campaigns we can do off cycle I think us leveraging the expertise and the abilities of, of a vendor make a lot of sense for us to, to, to move forward. No further questions, Madam Chair. I move to adopt. Right. Second. We have a motion and a second to adopt PSC 40791-2223, Department of Elections. If you're in the room and you have public comment, if you're in the room and you have public comment um, on the motion, you may come to the podium now. If you're on the telephone, please press star three now. President Minor, no public comment. Okay. Uh, commissioners, the roll call vote uh, to approve PSC 40791-2223, Department of Elections, Vice President Favetti. Aye. Commissioner Crawley. Aye. Commissioner Savison. Aye. And I vote aye. We have approved 40791. Director, thank you for being here. Okay. Thank you, Director. We are ready for the next agenda item. We are the consent agenda. All matters on the consent agenda considered by the Civil Service Commission will be acted upon by a single vote of the commission. There will be no separate discussion on these items unless a request is made, in which event the matter shall be removed from the consent agenda and considered as a separate item. I will read all the items. 
Item 10, report on position-based testing. Recommendation, adopt the report. Item 11, report on proportion of appointments exempt under Charter Sections 10.104-1, 2, and 4 through 12. Recommendation, adopt the report. Item 12, annual report on certification of eligibles, entry and promotion, uniform ranks of fire, police and sheriff. Recommendation, adopt the report. Item 13, report of exempt appointments and position requests under Charter Sections 10.104-16 through 10.104-18 for the period of January 1, 2023 to June 30, 2023. Recommendation, adopt the report. Item 14, report of future employment restrictions and probationary releases for the period of January 1, 2023 to Jan June 30, 2023. Recommendation, adopt the report. Item 15, report on provisional appointments. Recommendation, adopt the report. Item 16, report of expired exempt appointments under Charter Sections 10.104-16 through 10.104-18 for the period of January 1, 2023 to June 30, 2023. Recommendation, adopt the report. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, commissioners, um, would you like any of the reports pulled off of the consent agenda for further discussion? Vice President Favetti. Uh, yes, I'd like to have item number 12, uh, 13 and 14. Pulled off. Okay. Uh, Commissioner Salveson. I would add to that 15 and 16. Okay. And Commissioner Crawley. I'm covered with my colleagues. Okay. Very good. So, um, just to confirm, we are uh, separating from the consent agenda 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. Is that correct? Yes. If it is, we're ready for a motion and a second to approve the consent agenda. So moved. Second. We have a motion and a second to approve the consent agenda. The consent agenda now consists of agenda items 10 and 11. If you're in the room and you have public comment on the motion to approve the consent agenda, which again, uh, agenda items 10 and 11, you may come to the podium. If you're on the telephone, you may press star three now. President Minor, no public comment at this time. Okay. Uh, commissioners, the roll call vote to approve the consent agenda, agenda items 10 and 11. Vice President Favetti? Aye. Commissioner Crawley? Aye. Commissioner Salveson? Aye. And I vote aye. We have approved uh, the consent agenda. We are now ready to discuss the five items pulled from the consent agenda. Um, the first being agenda item 12. Uh, Director Eisen, you alluded to these during your director's report. Any opening comments you'd like to make? Questions are commissioner and we can okay. address them. All right. Um, commissioner, Vice President Favetti. Yeah, so I'm on 12, 12. 13, and then 12, 13, 14. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, hi, uh, my question has to do with um, on one side, we're having this, this very difficult time hiring police officers. It, it zeroes in on the police officers and specifically the Q2s. Uh, 
<clears throat> having a hard time hiring police officers. And yet, I note that on the eligible list, there are 522 current eligibles available for consideration. That including the fact that the backgrounds are going to be conducted, I guess, prior to any, from what I understand, that you're uh, even before the the adoption of an eligible or there's this, there's an expedited mechanism now for background investigations. If with this 522, why are we? Do we have how many vacancies left? Do we have higher to hire? Does it look like there's going to be this 522 is going to be adequate, um, or um, do we have? Uh, is there are any backgrounds delays? And is they are the academies being funded? Um, so the idea is we have these these eligibles. We have vacancies. I don't know how many they are at this point, but it would seem to me 522 should be uh, a lot to be able to fit at least a couple of academy classes, maybe. Um, so Jen Lowe, public safety team manager, uh, to address the Q2. So, to be placed on the eligible list, the candidates just need to pass the written test, mm -hmm. oral interview and uh, physical ability tests. So once they pass those, they get placed on the eligible list and then they have to go to backgrounds. Right. So you lose a lot of candidates at the background phase right. and that so, is after they've been placed on the eligible list. Right. So with this 522, are you saying that that's uh, how many eligible or how many, excuse me, how many vacancies do we have that we're currently looking to fill and is 522 not enough? The hiring rate is usually one out of five candidates make it to the chief's level. Um, so the percentage of those getting hired out of that 500 is not enough to fill the gap that the department has. And they are not able to fill. In the past, they would fill 50 per academy. I think the last one they filled 30 at the start. So. With these 500, are we anticipating that we're going to be able to have an academy class soon? I think they just started one and I believe there's another one in January. At okay, so earliest. that would be, and then in the meantime, uh, the recruitment rates, are they increasing, decreasing? We see an uptick in applications. Mm -hmm. um, we do test monthly. The last, our next PAT and oral will be this Saturday with 160 plus candidates coming in to test. But the show rate at these events are still hovering around between 50 and 60%. So we could invite 160 and maybe half to 60% will show up. And of those, if they pass both components, will then be placed on the eligible list or the next eligible list. And for the background, you're including not only backgrounds for uh, uh, you know, past work and th that sort of thing, but also including the psychological. Yeah, and the SFPD takes care of that component. Okay, but that but that's part of the the entire process. Is there a higher rate of, um, if I recall correctly, the psychological ratings for San Francisco were higher than most jurisdictions? That I do not have the information oh. with, because DHR doesn't handle that component. Oh, oh, police! Oh, that's right. They they contract out. That is true. Thank you. That, yeah, that answers my question. <laughs> okay. Uh, Commissioner Crawley has questions. I'll follow up to Vice President Favetti. So just after the 522, what is the percentage of loss after the background? Um, usually it's one in five that they will move on. So it is a high rate where you lose a lot of candidates in the background process. 
And second follow-up, is that a, a joint sheriff and police academy? split numbers or just mostly police? It's mostly police. If sheriffs need to have candidates go through, they will send over candidates from the sheriff department to go through the police, the SFPD Academy. Okay, no further questions. Thank you. I appreciate the report. It was very detailed. And quite frankly, almost every question I had was answered. Okay, thank you. Uh, I just wanna make sure, you know, I mean, we're all concerned about what's happening as far as, you know, the recruitment for police officers and so just, it's good to see that it's on track. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner uh, Favetti, I just wanted to make sure you were aware that the police department, um, in light of the vacancies, has taken a very close look in coordination with DHR of the workflow and the processes that they employ to try and reduce the amount of time that it takes to get um, candidates through the process and be able to hire them. Um, they've made a number of strides. We continue to work with them and we're happy to give you more information if you want to hear more about it. Uh, there's always been an issue with regard to the funding or uh, staffing of the, uh, the, historically speaking, I should say, of the uh, backgrounds unit and whether or not that's that's fully staffed at this point. And um, uh, I understand with the props, possibly with COVID and such, there are some issues there, but um, I, I would hope that that's that there's a there's a real focus in funding that particular unit. Um, I believe they are fully staffed and they do bring quite a few prop F's retirees from the department back to assist. And with that, I would say very thank you very much and I would uh, move to approve and adopt the report. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Commissioner Crawley, did you have additional oh, I'm questions? Sorry. No. Okay. So we have a motion. Oh, okay. We have a, a, a motion and is there a second? Second. Okay. We have a motion to adopt the report. This is agenda item number 12. If you're in the room and you have public comment on the motion, you may come to the podium. If you're on the telephone, press star three now. President Minor, no public comment at this time. Uh, commissioners, the roll call vote to uh, adopt the report for agenda item number 12. Uh, Vice President Favetti. Aye. Commissioner Crawley. Aye. Commissioner Savison. And I vote aye. We have adopted the report, agenda item number 12, the annual report on certification of eligibles. Um, agenda item number 13. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Executive Officer Ng, uh, Sean Sherburn with the Department of Human Resources. I'm joined by my client services consulting manager, Lisa Pagula, uh, who really is uh, the knowledge behind many of these uh, details in the report. So happy to answer any questions. Hey, I wanted to thank you particularly for attachment E. Um, and uh, uh, I, one of the, the concern I had is um, I, I realized that we're going through COVID and we've had an, an, a, a significant increase in the number of exempts. And uh, when I added up the number of one, you know, category one through 12, and then to the total number at this point, it comes up to about 16.47 or 16.5 of the workforce. And I mean, I cannot remember where I used to get the rule of thumb was that you want to keep your, your workforce, your, you have a certain number of, in a public system, certain number of quote unquote, they used to call them patronage jobs, the one through 12s, 
but they're not really patronage jobs. I mean, it's but that's the old time old time terminology. And then you would have a certain number exempt as needed leaves that sort of thing. And that that would category should not go over 10% in a general public system. That was, and I, as I say, I do not remember my sources for that. So I'll have to. So I see that this is now at 16%, uh, 16.5. And I'm my primary concern is as we get the examination program running and up. And moving as we are, I mean, it's as shown in the position based testing. Uh, in fact, I, that was, I did want to say, although I didn't pull it, I want to say that was really excellent. It was very, very, um, very uh, optimistic. I was very, very pleased. But do you anticipate these exempt appointments going down? I do, uh, and in particular. We we have other, we have many mm -hmm. programs that we've talked about. Exempt to permanent was one mm -hmm. where we are still seeing the effects of that, uh, bringing down the number of CAT 18 appointments. Um, we have central monitoring and tracking of CAT 16, so I don't see uh, any um, any significant movement on on that front. Mm -hmm. And then we also have our class based testing that we are in the nascent stages of moving out. We're going to start seeing. Uh, the effects of a citywide post referral selection process for the cat, or I'm sorry, for the 18, 20, and 22. Uh, so we'll see folks moving from uh, from those positions into permanent. Um, and generally, we, as we open things up to continuous testing to online exams, not only going to help more people get in the door, but it will be an incentive for departments to use that process. Why do an exempt process? And then have to later on go back and do um, uh, a PCS exam process. So, yes, I, I believe those things will guide us and will continue to drop these numbers that, as we pointed out in the report, did go up during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Okay, just wanted to make sure that there's a nexus there. Thank you so very much. And with that, um, unless there is, I don't think there's any other questions, I would move to adopt the report. Second. We have a motion and a second to adopt the report, um, which is agenda item 13. If you're in the room and you have public comment, you may come to the podium. If you're on the telephone, press star three now. President Minor, no public comment at this time. Thank you. Commissioners, the roll call vote to adopt Report agenda item 13, Vice President Favetti. Aye. Commissioner Crawley. Aye. Commissioner Stavison. Aye. And I vote aye. We have adopted agenda item number 13, DHR. Thank you for the presentation, answering the questions, and for your report. Um, we are ready for agenda item 14, Vice President Favetti. Good afternoon again, Commissioners. Uh, Sean Sherburn. Uh, Lisa Fagula, uh, we will be doing a little bit of back and forth with my colleagues on the exam side of the house, but uh, here uh, happy to answer questions uh, related to item number 14, uh, future employment restrictions and probation releases. Right, this is uh, actually uh, probationary releases where I'm focusing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, as we know that the, the probationary period is the last phase of the examination pro uh, process. And one of the reasons that uh, this was requested, I believe, at one time, the idea was, you know, to look at how successful was the exam. Um, and so what I noticed is on the 2905, the HSA senior eligibility worker, 
we have 11 releases and I'm assuming that these are pretty much probably, um, they're just standard releases, uh, non-disciplinary. And it seemed, I was wanted to know, number one, how many vacancies were there? Um, is this a, a, a high rate for a particular class? It just, uh, it stood out to be perfectly honest. And so then the question was, was the exam adequate? So, and if it, if that wasn't noted, what was the problem that we have such a high rate of release here? So I can answer uh, part of the question, and then we actually are fortunate to have our exam colleague from HSA in the audience today, and so Myrna will join us in one second. But uh, the question uh, about whether or not these were disciplinary releases, there was only, of the 48 employees that were released, only one uh, was for disciplinary reason. The other 47 were not. So it is not for, for that reason. But to answer the more specific questions about HSA, um, I could provide wildly uh, exciting answers, but I think you'd actually rather hear the actual uh, from the source. So. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Myrna Palma, um, exams manager for HSA, M-I-R-N-A, P-A-L-M-A. And uh, uh, the 2905, 25% uh, of our uh, uh, employees are 2905s. Usually when we hire them, they're in cohorts of 50 and they go through an induction uh, program. And uh, passing rate is 80%. So uh, that's probably where the numbers are coming from without having any more detail. Well, no, no, so back up is because these are 11 releases during the probationary period. So in other words, they were appointed. So they completed the exams. The, they, they go through induction for six months. And okay, I'll go back up. What do you mean for induction? So there is a training program, okay? And during that training program, they take courses related to their work and they take testing as they go along. Not the testing, not civil service exams, but they're tested on the content of the class. And 80% uh, pass, meaning 20 do not. And so if they do not pass the, the exams, they are released on probation. And we usually hired, um, two classes per year, two to three classes a year. So it's about between 100 and 150 uh, roughly uh, per year. So they, how do they get onto their list to be appointed? They take a civil service exam. Okay, so you're saying that 20% who have taken a civil service exam get appointed and then are released during the training period? They don't, um, they don't cut the, uh, they don't make it through the, the, the class the period. So they are tested on, I don't know the content of the classes, but I know they are, um, they, it's a, there's a math component, uh, there is a system component, and some of them don't cut it. You know, they have uh, trainers that support them and on the job training as well. And uh, through this process, some of them fail, and that's where you see that they are released from probation. So it's not punitive. It's basically, it's based on this, this class. They don't pass the, the content, and they 
they are released from probation. 20% seems awfully high. If they've already taken a civil service exam and now yeah. they're going through their yeah. training. I, uh, my understanding is that this is uh, the industry standard throughout the counties because all the um, uh, eligibility workers in different California mm -hmm. counties have to go through an induction program. And the rate of failing is 20%. So we are um, we're pretty much with other counties when it comes to uh, non-passing um, rate. It just seems high anyway. Even if it's other counties are like this, it just seems awfully high that 20%. Yeah. After you've given a civil service exam, that would sort of give me the idea that they had the basic skills they to do. go through their training. They do. So um, the MQs for this class is two years of customer service experience or one year of eligibility work. So our civil service test is basic customer service, basic math, and during the induction pro program, we test on uh, the knowledge and skills they're gonna need on the job. On Calwin, which is what we use right now, math skills, very basic math skills. This is basic addition, um, just basic math um, percentages, and uh, many of them don't pass. Computer usage, just knowing how to use a computer and different commands, basic stuff. That's what we're training them on, and they still fail. So. Um, you know, we wish it wasn't that way because we want to keep them. Like I said, 25% of our uh, employee uh, labor force is uh, eligibility workers, and we're always in need of them. But um, so I and I hear it, but, but see what I see is that what we said in the advisor that the deputy director Holmes prepared was that the minimum qualifications for the job are set such that an individual could reasonably be able to perform the job. And so I understand, you know, and there's nothing that we can do with this, or it doesn't seem like it, but it just seems to me maybe it doesn't, because everybody else has 20%, we don't have to. That's the way I look at it. So the 2905 is a very particular class, okay? Because we are requiring them to have the minimum to learn the skills on this uh, training program. You see what I'm saying? We're, we're not testing them for them to be ready to go on the job. We're just saying, do you have the skills to be put through a class, a classroom program, and learn the skills? We're gonna teach you the skills that you're gonna need on the job. So you're taking, setting up the minimum qualifications so that they could go through the courses. Correct. So we're testing um, two years of customer service or one year of uh, eligibility, determining eligibility is pretty low. So that's what we're testing. Are you ready to go through this induction process and learn the skills that you're gonna need to perform the work? So my questions, mm -hmm. um, I still think okay. that we should uh, try to get a better, a better percentage. Okay. <laughs> So my, uh, my boss, the director of HR is on the line and she'll like to add some details to what I said. Okay. 
Uh, Ms. Williams, I unmuted you. Can you hear me? Get it. Can you hear me? Yes, okay. we can. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Katrina Williams, K A T R I N A. Last name is Williams, and I am the HR director at HSA. I apologize for not being on camera, but I'm having some tech issues. So, thank you, um, Myrna. Um, recently, we have adjusted our requirements for the 2905 so that the classroom portion of the training that participants only have to get 70% as a passing score in order to move on to the second part of induction, which is the on the job training. So the induction, as, as Myrna stated, is a six month process. Um, trainees enter the program and they are in a classroom setting for just about three months where they learn basic program around CalFresh, Medi-Cal, um, general, general relief or assistance, and our CalWORKs programs. In that time, excuse me, they're also learning how to determine eligibility based on program facts, but also using our eligibility determining system, which currently is CalWIN. We are transitioning to the CalSaw system, which is a statewide system, over the next few months and have a go-live date of October 30th. During that time, if the participants do not score cumulative 70% on quizzes and tests, then they would be released um, during the classroom period. If they are able to score that 70%, they move on to the on-the-job training, and at that time, they are graded on completion and accuracy. So this is the time when they're learning on the job, they're interacting directly with clients, and the instructors are at that point ensuring that they're able to conduct interviews, determine eligibility, answer correct questions, and enter information into the system correctly. The reason why this is important is because their accurate entries also tie back to the funds we have available for our public benefit services because we, we actually interface with the most vulnerable San Franciscans, so about 25% um, of, no, I take that back. One in four San Franciscans actually come through our doors. Have my math the other way. Um, so our system is set up, as Myrna alluded to, similar to, to other regions, um, a six-month system. Some regions have longer. We have a six-month induction time, um, and we use cohorts. We have trainers in the classroom portion, and then we also have supervisors and some program staff who train during the um, during the on-the-job training portion. And we have been working pretty well for the last four months between our program and our learning and organizational development to revamp induction to see if we can get different outcomes. I do not think the current number is that we're releasing 20%. I want to get back to you on that because I believe it's not 20%. But um, we have been working to have more positive outcomes for trainees. Unfortunately, we do have to test to ensure that they know how to determine eligibility and they have system knowledge. Thank you very much for that information. And I, and I, and I look forward to uh, seeing a, a, a more improved uh, outcomes. Um, and I, I, I understand, I, at one time I did work for HSA, but it was called social services at the time. And I understand how complex that process is. Um, it's, uh, and so I truly appreciate it, but I also appreciate the fact that you are working to uh, 
obtain more positive outcomes. And I'm looking forward, as I say, to seeing that result. And with that, if there are no other questions from anybody, I would uh, move to adopt the report. Second. We have a motion and a second to adopt the report, which is agenda item 14. Uh, Director Williams, thank you for uh, picking up and uh, coming in and providing some additional insight into uh, the, the data we're looking at um, um, from the report from HSA. Um, if you have public comment and you're in the room, you may come to the podium now. This is agenda item 14. If you're on the telephone, you may press star three now. President Miner, we do have a caller, um, so I'll unmute them now. Thank you. Caller, please state and spell your name for the record. Uh, yeah, it's Patrick Monetza again. I think you have the spelling of my name. Um, Having heard previous testimony today from FEIU Local tw uh, 10 to 1 and from IFTTE Local 21, I want to take this time briefly to encourage you again that uh, you should continue Agenda Item 8 until a future meeting and provide members of the public and the unions more time to understand the changes that are being proposed that are going to be explained to you later. So please, please, please consider taking no action today on Agenda Item 8 and instead um, uh, continue it to your October meeting to allow the public more time to understand just what these changes entail. Sorry to uh, uh, take up your time again, but I really hope you will um, adopt my suggestion to continue item number eight until a future commission meeting. Thank you for your time. Okay, Elizabeth, any additional public uh, comment on agenda item 14? Uh, yes, President Miner, we have one more caller. Okay, thank you. Caller, please uh, state and spell your name for the record. Hello, my name is Jesse Stanton. That's J-E-S-S-E-S-T-A-N-T-O-N. -S -S -E I'm a 2905 eligibility worker with the Human Service Agency and a rank and file member and shop steward of SEIU 10 to 1. Um, this, uh, this question of induction training and the, the releases from probation of 2905 candidates or, or appointees is a, is a big issue for us. And I would uh, dispute some of the characterizations from from manager uh, manager Palma and, and uh, uh, director Williams. Um, I would call attention to uh, the civil service rules RSA ten to one contract define a, a probationary period of, as a period where the workers' regular duties can be observed and evaluated. And the induction program and the on-the-job training program as practiced by HSA for the 2905 classification does not comport with that. That the uh, classroom training um, is uh, uh, a, a curriculum that is, you know, very much a classroom curriculum. They teach us things about long division. They teach us how to do things on paper that we're not actually required to do on paper in, in the actual job. Um, in, in fact, things that are just not, not done. We don't have 
policies or processes to do things that way anymore, but still they teach them to us because somebody, I guess, sees the value in teaching that to us. They teach us long division, which they don't teach the school children anymore. They teach us long division because someone feels there's a value to that. Uh, rank and file members um, and recent recent uh, candidates who have passed this this uh, this training program don't agree that there's a value to that. Also, I would say that um, you know the number, just the pure number over six months that they released, that's over 20% of the total number of people that were released from probation in that time. Going down the list, you see the next five classifications with a lot of people released there. Those are all classifications that deal with matters of life and death. And I understand, uh, you know, to, to, to Dr. Williams' point about Director Williams' point about the funding uh, being tied to the success of our uh, the accuracy of our uh, uh, eligibility calculations. Um, my counterpoint to that is that during induction and on the job training. Very, very little time is spent on actually learning how to do the actual eligibility calculations that we do on the job that were uh, trained and graded on passing these tests. We're trained and graded on passing these one on one evaluations with the supervisor. They're character it's a very, very different character from the actual work that we do on the phone in person and when we do task making eligibility determinations. Um, I, I feel like uh, this um, program as as uh, uh, manager as manager Palmer laid out, the program sets out to fail 20% of people. Um, this is wasteful. This is abusive. I strongly feel, and I believe it's a consensus opinion of people who've recently gone to this program, that it is in all cases a wasteful and abusive program and uh, not a good use of anybody's time. Also, I'd call, call attention on the waste front that uh, these 11 members who were released, they were released after nine months because they had all had their probation extended. So people are being hired. Uh, and we kept we on need the to ask for you to wrap months. up your comments, please. Um, your three minutes has yes, expired, right. but complete your sentence. It's uh, very disruptive to the lives of people who released after nine months. Also, uh, I can't imagine any job that you can't teach somebody how to do it in nine months. I believe this is a failure of the uh, the way the class is structured. It's not standard in other counties. Thank you for your time. Okay, thank you for your comments. Uh, any additional public comment? President Minor, no public comment at this time. Okay, thank you. Uh, commissioners, the roll call vote to approve Ad, uh, to adopt the report for agenda item 14, Vice President Favetti. Aye. Commissioner Crawley. Aye. Commissioner Salveson. Aye. And I vote aye. We've adopted the report for agenda item 14. The next pulled report is agenda item 15, uh, Commissioner Salveson. I'm sorry, was yeah, that that's you? Correct. Uh -huh. Yes. Aye. Um, just a question about the, um, in the background, it talks about um, departments being able to conduct a TPV hiring process, uh, which requires a competitive selection process. So I wondered what that process was. So I'm gonna go on record. My name is Stephanie Miorga Tipton. I don't know if you need me to spell, spell it out, but, um, yeah, they do. So we do a competitive process with them. So the departments have to do some type of competitive process for them to get appointed. They also have to, when they uh, apply for the class-based testing or position-based testing, they have to be reachable on the list and then they can get appointed. And so could you give me an example of the kind of 
um, competitive selection that is utilized here? Typically, they do, uh, depending on what the classification is, it would be either performance examination or it could potentially be an oral interview process. And are people notified that there are TPV positions available or they just call up yes, their friends? Yes, they are. Mm -hmm. So how, what is the notification process? So for provisional appointments, we make sure that, or DHR makes sure that the departments cannot announce before, uh, or they have to announce before we do a class-based test or now a PBT test because of the changes that were recently made. But we're, we don't run them in conjunction. They have to make their hire prior to that. And so uh, candidates are told if it's a provisional, uh, it's up to three years of appointment. Okay, my, my question really uh, relates to this, the process for identifying people who want to apply for the TPV job. So for that job, is there any kind of notice or? So what we do. How are those people identified that get to be in the competitive process? Well, with the temporary provisionals, we usually have them announced prior. So there's a, a announcement that goes out that they're al alerted to. With our exempt, which is separate, but I'm just gonna share this information because I think it's helpful. With our exempt appointments, we, if we have a, like a concurrent recruitment going, we will acknowledge that and then we will tell the department, use the pool from what we're recruiting from. Oh, sure, sure. Excuse me. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Anna Biaspis, Employment Services Director. Um, I just wanted to make sure everyone was clear on this. Based on Civil Service Commission, ooh, Based on civil service commission rules, um, we cannot conduct a provisional appointment unless it's absent an eligible list. So basically, um, with provisional appointments, we require all departments uh, in compliance with the rules to post publicly for um, for provisional. Um, and then what we do. Um, Although provisionals don't require the formal exam, whether it's written multiple choice or performance exam, what we do is should we get an inspection request, um, departments can tell you or has documented their provisional process, meaning how they screen down the provisionals based on job related criteria and then um, and and also got to the selected candidate. Normally, there is some sort of oral interview or screening process, whether they have to fill out a questionnaire, et cetera, et cetera. But it is a competitive process. Okay, thank you. That thank you both. That answers my question. Thank you. Uh, Vice oh. President Favetti has a question. Just wanted to clarify. Now, as far as the once there's an authorization to hire, what we used to call the OAA or OA, excuse me, or oral authorization, um, where, what department do they do? They go through client services, and is it client services are reviewed the hiring process? 
How do they get the authorization to hire on a provisional basis? So I remember that a long time ago. We I know. Don't, I know. We, we, don't, to, we used to go through EEO. We don't go through the pro that type of process anymore. We have the request to fill process. So it's all electronic. So the position originally goes through client services, and then it goes through the exams team to determine that there are no eligible lists um, active. And we even ask for a target date of a future exam if it's not being given by DHR. So it's all kind of electronic now, mm -hmm. but we do review that there is no active eligible list. And do you, do you review their their uh, recruitment process? I didn't have any questions on this, but now I do. <laughs> well, we do have the civil service rules. I mean, we can't, I mean, especially now that we're opening it up for provisionals, we ensure that we are available for consultation. I could tell you that when we, when Director Eisen first opened up provisional uh, processes, again, we got a ton of calls going, how do you do that again? Um, but, but, um, I mean, everyone that we have talked to has followed the process. And as you can see, we're promoting provisionals prior to creating an eligible list. So when we, um, as I reported at last commission meeting, mm -hmm. um, they can just simply pick up their provisionals without doing a post recruitment selection process because the provisional is a competitive process. And is anybody checking in whether it's an, uh, the applicant pool is diverse? Or that there's a recruitment that's through diversity. Okay, I, I see heads nodding, and so that's okay. Yes. Yes. All right. Thank we you. do. We do have um, our system that has demographic information. Perfect. Uh, I have no further questions. I'm sorry. Then I. Oh. I, commissioners, just to make sure everybody's really clear about this, because. Uh, we did make a deliberative decision about focusing on provisional appointments, given the large number of vacancies versus um, exempt appointments, because exempt appointments do not require any form of competitive process. And uh, I'm very much in favor of letting people know, I believe mm -hmm. our applicant tracker system, people can self-identify their interests and uh, the system itself can push out the notices for provisional appointments as well. And so it just gives candidates an opportunity to apply and it requires departments to go through some steps to make distinctions between those candidates and make selections. It's a solid process. I'm very supportive of that. Anyway, thank you though. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you. And I uh, move to adopt this report. I second. We have a motion and a second to adopt the report, which is agenda item 15. If you're in the room and you have public comment, you may come to the podium. If you're on the telephone, press star three now. President Minor, no public comment at this time. Thank you. Commissioners, the roll call vote on agenda item number 15 to adopt the report. Uh, Vice President Favetti? Aye. Commissioner Crawley? Aye. Commissioner Salveson? Aye. And I vote aye. We have adopted the report, agenda item 15, DHR. Thank you so much for your work and for responding to questions. The last bold contract is the next one, uh, number 16. Commissioner Salveson? 
Yeah, I think I might have um, mixed up the reports, but um, so this one might not be 16. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I'll ask the question anyway. It might we might have already approved this report. Mm -hmm. um, it's the report of exempt appointments and position requests under charter sections 10.104-16 through 10.104-18 for the period January 1, 2023 to June 30, 2023. Yeah, that's number 13. Okay. Let me just ask this question, mm -hmm. even though we've approved it. Um, I'll allow it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, uh, there's a chart on page 3 of approved position requests. Um, and then the category 18 shows. 869 requests. For the period January 1, 2019. To June 30, 2019. And then. There are a significant reduction to 618. From July 1, 2019 to 12, 31, 2019. And then now we have now we have the current period, which is that we're talking about, which is January 1, 2023 to June 30, 2023. And we're back up to the uh, eight, 852. And I'm just wondering if there's a seasonal movement in this category that we're and that we would be expecting it to drop uh, for the next six month period. Sean Sherburn again, um, Lisa Pagula, uh, client services manager. Um, we in the past have reported on the cyclical nature. Departments get their positions loaded uh, in the newly approved ASO in about the time frame that we're in now, which is the first half of the fiscal year. They start recruitment processes, reasonably are able to hire people in um, in the second half of the fiscal year after January. So we do see this cycle go up and down. Uh, on an annual basis, but then your, I think, I think that answers your question. I don't, the longitudinal aspect of it, uh, it's really hard with everything that happened with, uh, the pandemic to, to really assess how that would have shaken out. But yes, historically we've done this report, uh, the, all 12 years that I've been in my role and we have absolutely each time seen the up and down cycle for appointments and positions. Okay, thank you. Thank you for indulging me mixing yeah. up these reports. <laughs> and I, so I have no, no questions on number 16, so I will move um, approval or, or adoption of that report. Second. We have a motion and a second to adopt agenda item number 16. If you're in the room and you have public comment, you may come to the podium. If you're on the telephone, press star three now. President Minor, no public comment at this time. Thank you. Uh, commissioners, the roll call vote to approve agenda item to adopt the report for agenda item 16. Vice President Favetti. Aye. Commissioner Crawley. Aye. Commissioner Salveson. And I vote aye. We have adopted agenda item number 16. So it looks like we have completed the uh, consent agenda from somebody. <laughs> yeah, someone is breathing hard <laughs> and we are ready for uh, the next agenda item. We are now on the regular agenda. Item 17 has been postponed to the next meeting. 
or non item 18 status report on personal services contract number 48282-1819 from the department of public health recommendation to set the report uh, thank you who's with us from uh dph um, good afternoon, commissioners. This is Kelly Hermoto. I'm the acting PSC coordinator for the Department of Public Health. And we also have David Smith, the chief pharmacy officer, um, available to answer questions. Um, thank you. Uh, do you want to just give us a, a very brief uh, update on your summary report? Sure. Um, at the Civil Service Commission meeting on August 19th, 2019, the Civil Service Commission approved PSC 48282-1819 for outsourced sterile compounding services for the Department of Public Health. And we were asked to report back on the status of the contract um, in four years, um, which is now August 2023. Um, contractors in this PSC perform as needed outsourced sterile compounding pharmacy services to provide quality sterile products not otherwise commercially available for the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital Pharmacy. Um, and I'll um, turn it over to Dave Smith um, to give a brief update on how the contractor has been performing. Hello, Commissioners. Um, I would like to report that the 503B compounding vendor that uh, we've outsourced to has done a wonderful job. It allowed the pharmacy department to really minimize, um, be fiscally responsible, minimize pharmaceutical waste, mainly because utilizing this vendor allows us to have a longer use for the drugs. It also allows us during a time of a large uh, drug shortages across the entire country um, to maintain consistent medications available to our, pro to our patients that we would normally not uh, have access to. Um, and just as importantly, it, it's it's very challenging to uh, compound these specific drugs. And for a lot of our staff who are already working uh, as much as possibly can, uh, it, it really prevents them from having excessive upper body manipulations that have caused a lot of time off um, and physical, re re physical rehabilitation that has been needed. So it's actually been protective for um, for our staff, which has been welcomed by them. Um, in terms of the vendor's performance, they've met all the requirements of the contract, delivering on time, um, provided um, reports when needed, portal access, and all the support services that were needed. And I'm happy to stop there and take any questions. Okay, thank you. Commissioners, any questions or comments on this agenda item? Yeah, um, Vice President Favetti. I have no questions unless uh, another, okay, because what I uh, I wanted to say is that the, uh, the report met all the requirements that the commission was requesting, I believe at the time, and and it's, a, it's gratifying to hear that the contract is working so well. And so with that, I would move to approve to adopt the report. Second. Okay, we have a motion and a second to accept the report from uh, DPH. If you're in the room and you have public comment, you may come to the podium now. If you are on the telephone, please press star three now. President Minor, no public comment at this time. Okay, thank you. Commissioners, the roll call vote to accept agenda item number 18, the status report from DPH. 
Vice President Favetti. Aye. Commissioner Carley. Aye. Commissioner Salveson. Aye. And I vote aye. We have approved or accepted the report with a status update from DPH. DPH, thank you for being here and thank you for your work. Thank you, Commissioner. We are ready for the next agenda item. Item 19, appeal by Eves Augustine of rejection of their application for 2918 Human Services Agency Social Worker CPT 2918-904264 standardized examination as bias. Recommendation of the Human Resources Director, adopt the report and deny the appeal by Eves Augustine. Okay, is the appellant with us? I'm not sure. President Miner, the appellant is not logged on virtually um, unless uh, if he's a caller, he needs to press star three so I can unmute the microphone. Okay. Executive officer, did we hear from the appellant prior to the meeting? We have not heard from the appellant. It seems like the appellant is not on the phone either. Okay. Um, commissioners, uh, based on the record in f before you, um, which has been reviewed by the commission, uh, would you like to proceed? Uh, Commissioner Salveson. Yes, I know that this item was um, postponed once already at the request of the appellant. So I'm, I think it's appropriate for us to proceed. I just had one question. Yes, I, would that yes be Vice President Favetti. Uh, the one question I had is, do you take a look at the, because I, I was reading the materials that the appellant submitted and I was wondering if in your exams, do you take a look at the particular question that he's asked and whether or not there is biases, i.e. the passage rate um, among your applicants and whether or not there is any tie-in to, I, I think he was saying that persons of color have a lower, um, that, that, the, that the standardized test is biased. And I was wondering if there was any kind of review yeah, and I, I, the materials, I, I support the decision, but, mm -hmm. but I was just wondering if, if as a matter of course, does the department take a look at that? We, we take a look at the adverse impact report uh, for every exam and uh, um, make sure that there's no, also our passing point is 60% for this exam. So. Okay, but you do take a look at adverse yes. impact. Yes. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. I did wanted to make sure that that was on the record. Yes. And with that, mm -hmm. I would second Amy, or did you make a motion? Um, but I would like to say that I have read the materials thoroughly and um, I'm satisfied uh, that it's appropriate to deny the appeal. So therefore I move that we adopt the report and deny the And I would second that. I'm sorry, I was told I need to state my name. Myrna Palma, M-I-R-N-A-P-A-L-M-A. Thank you. And you're here representing HSA? HSA, yes. Thank you. Okay, we have a motion and a second to uh, accept the report, thereby denying the appeal. Adopt the report, thereby denying the appeal. If you are in the room and you have public comment, 
you may come to the podium. If you're on the telephone, you may press star three now. President Minor, no public comment at this time. Okay. Uh, commissioners, the roll call vote on the motion to adopt the report, thereby denying the appeal agenda item number 19. Vice President Favetti? Aye. Commissioner Crawley? Aye. Commissioner Salveson? Aye. And I vote aye. We have adopted the report and denied the appeal. HSX, thank you for being here. And we will communicate the status to the appellant. Okay, uh, commissioners, it's 530 um, and uh, we will go back to agenda item eight. Um, although, um, is a health break warranted? Only if you're gonna stay another hour. <laughs> I, I think we can be pretty quick. <laughs> um, I was going to suggest that um, given the the comments from the public commenters and the questions from the commissioners. Um, while this was not scheduled as an action item and was indeed simply a discussion item. <laughs> um, some of the commenters seem to think you were going to be doing something very big today, but um, I think there's a few additional open issues to discuss. I'm happy to address any additional questions that you want to discuss with me. Separately, um, we can do that and I can. You know, work with any of you individually, um, but I think the next step, what I would propose is that I work on a draft of the policy that would. Um, I think simplify the existing policy, not be necessarily changing significant. Components, but that would also then highlight for you where, you know, kind of leave. Leave some room in there to give you the options and a little bit more framework. Um, but that I think we could potentially have on for October 2nd as a further discussion. That's just okay. my proposal. Um, thank you, Deputy Kimberly. Uh, Commissioner Salveson. Yeah, uh, that makes sense to me. So just so it would be kind of like a red line with maybe some alternate proposals. Because one of the things I was struggling with as I was looking at this was I didn't have our existing policy in front of us. So it would right. be nice to. Um, I'm happy. Yes, we can certainly provide a copy of the existing policy. I tried to do it as a red line. It's not effective. Okay. Um, so, but I do think that a draft. Kind of laying out these points um, as an example of 1 of the issues that was raised is um, about. The section on DHR, I think that sounds perhaps it was perceived as being far more dramatic than it was intended to be. Um, the existing policy from 2014 um, actually appends to itself DHR's policy and procedures, um, which change. And the one that's on the policy isn't even a, the right procedures anymore and we're talking about a move to a service now database this is just the step-by-step -step guide for how to enter your pscs into the database and what they do with those it's not changing a requirement that you still report and provide this information but it would be simply allowing dhr the 
what it already does, which is that it's responsible for facilitating the policy of the commission. And so GHR would have more ability to be nimble in updating its policy on its website to explain to people how they file the PSCs, what the steps they are that they go into this actual database and do it, but it doesn't change the data that's required or that would be provided to the commission. Um, it, it's really just a how-to guide. Well, yeah, what was confusing? What, I think it was confusing. <laughs> well, yeah, because this is a 2013 that we had, and so what? Right. You know, and so I thought to myself, okay, but there are there were a couple high volume, I would say, um, very touching. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you, I, 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 I forgot to. Um, and I'm wondering if including something like automatic without us having a major presentation on what exactly that or not a major presentation but more information or even putting in or inserting the state process mm -hmm. without having more information is going to really inflame i think um or alarm i think maybe alarm i think it already has done that perhaps but um <laughs> I should identify myself. I'm so sorry, uh, Deputy City Kimberlin, Deputy City Attorney Kate Kimberlin. Um, on that point, I think the idea is that there are a variety of ways the commission could go. There already is functionally a kind of automatic approval process for the Prop Q, so the ten thousand dollars and under, right? That's that's the standard right now. Um, Another option would be to increase that value to something still de minimis, but you know, nothing, no large contracts. Another option would be to do what the state does, which is that it still goes through the process. You still have to document your, your contract. You still have to publish everything, provide notice, and it's incumbent upon either the commission, in the state's case, it's the board, um, or a labor partner or a member of the public to raise an objection in order for it to then come on to the the commission's agenda, but it doesn't mean that they're not still going through a process of reviewing and and being available for folks to comment on. Um, there's still an oversight process there, so I think that that was confusing to a lot of the folks who were calling in. This con it's certainly not intended to be, and the state does not follow a procedure where folks who contract just get to choose who they're contracting with and there's no oversight that that's certainly not how the civil service merit system works. I think I think with our system as well, um, some of the most uh, robust discussions and changes are the result of commission oversight as opposed to the union filing a protest or an objection. Mm -hmm. And so I was just being, I was challenged thinking about if you remove the work that the commission is now doing, uh, many of these contracts that really should be pulled and discussed would not be. Understandable. Mm -hmm. But were you just saying that in, in this, in the state system, the individual commissioners could pull the contracts and called them before i believe so i believe that is how but i don't think tech i i think in practice they likely don't um again this was not intended to be an advocacy component uh, it was not intended to be something suggesting that you should do all the things in this memo what i wanted to give you an opportunity to do was to see legally what you could do um but understanding that i didn't 
think this would be an all or nothing concept. I think, in fact, there are concepts in this memo that if you go with one, you're not going with another. Um, these are simply op options that you can choose from. Um, most of them, I think, are not as controversial, but there are a few that may be. Um, did Commissioner Carley, I saw you had through the chair. I, I, no, I want to conclude. That's all right. I know you're looking sorry. at your notes. Believe me. <laughs> oh, uh, wake up, President Minor. <laughs> <laughs> With that being said, I'll be brief to follow on what our president has stated. I think there's a matter of trust, the trust that the public, the workforce believes in the process that we have here. And I just think we need to state that up front. And I know we're all in this together and we want what's best for our city employees. That's why we're here. But I think you heard a sentiment of distrust and that's the world we live in. <laughs> but we want them to believe in the process we're uh, appointed to do. And and I agree with my colleagues, and that's all I'm going to say. So we'll, we'll pass this information back and forth and bring it back when it's ready to be cooked. Thanks very much, Council, and thank, thank you. you. Yes, and I, I expected that to be entirely what the next part of the process would be. So it was really helpful for me to hear um, everyone's input along the way, and it's been uh, an interesting process. Commissioner President Minor, I'd like to raise a somewhat related point, uh, not not so much on the commission's legal authority, but really more of a pragmatic concern that I have. Um, the labor agreements have longstanding clauses that have evolved over the years, but are essentially notice, opportunity to discuss, to consider alternatives. Um, that very much flow from the basic uh, bias in the in the charter that says that city employee, you know, we should self perform really most of our work with some exceptions and the commission considers those exceptions. Um, my concern has been that while we have those periods of time and they vary from contract to contract, which is a bone of contention for our OCA, um, they're often they're typically not utilized by our labor partners. Um, and yet I understand that there is a high level of distrust, a belief that we as a employer uh, overuse our uh, outside resources. Um, and I would like to see our unions use that consultation period. Um, and I think it's an important consideration for the commission when a union comes in front of this commission to object, to ask what happened in the 60 days leading up to that period and whether there was any discussion or any attempt. Um, because I think by the time it gets to the commission, uh, what you have in terms of information is the checklist that the department has filled out and that's, not a lot to be able to make um, a fully vetted determination on, although I agree with the comments of Commissioner Selvison earlier that it's clear that the process that you follow and that you've had in place for a long time now has been consistent with the case law. Um, I do think that 
the commission dovetailing its process a little bit better and trying to get some accountability on the other side that that discussion those discussions and the information needed has really come out <laughs> if there's going to be an objection and not just gee i'll just read the calendar today and stand up and object to these five things um, because the notice goes out they claude him claude from seiu said these come across my desk i see them all the time it's exactly what we do we send out lots and lots of notices and i for one when i did this very job in the 80s and 90s i watched them uh every single minute and uh i i don't think it's an unreasonable thing for, for us to expect our unions to be doing yeah on the other hand what i always find interesting is when they come you know they, and i have to say that the quality of the submissions in the past you know since we've i think 2014 i think is a big they, they will is just astoundingly better. But even with that, there are times when there's the commission finding that, wait a minute, this union hasn't been represented, hasn't been notified. Or, and it's a final phase. I also find just from the comparison when you used to do the work, if I don't remember Linda Jo Fuku, um, but it used to be that, you know, at the very, very last minute, people will be here and, oh, well, I think I'm going to object to all that. But that doesn't really happen. But if it's going to get to the point where it gets to this commission and there's a union representative, it means that the process is, there's, there's a real break in the process in a sense. But so on one side, I find that we do a clearing, uh, uh, there is a, um, um, I, I found it extremely appreciative of, of Commissioner Salveson to have caught the fact that one union hadn't been notified, and that was within the past six months. <laughs> so it's, um, it, I think that the public process is a good one. I don't think it's a, uh, a negative one. And I was astounded when I saw the procedure at how small and how short the commission's process is in comparison to the entire process. So that's that was a, a real education as far as and I and again, I would hope even with the presentation that we had today, <clears throat> I thought that was a real major improvement. But we do need to think in terms of the fact that we do have a responsibility to the public, and the language that we put on our source or our access portals or whatever um, needs to be understandable for the for the everyday person. Um, another benefit of putting this off until the October 2nd meeting is that um, I believe the city administrator's office is expecting to have at least a beta version of their access now. So it may be possible to have them come back and show a demonstration of how that's expected to work. Um, I can't promise on their behalf, <laughs> but um, that's at least my understanding is that they're hopeful. So I can certainly be in touch with them and try to work with them on that point as well. Thank you all for listening to the potential updates, and I know we'll have a lot more work on this topic. Okay. It's such a fun one. <laughs> you know, I think it is, but I'm a legal nerd. So. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, DCA. We, uh, we appreciate your work and your service. And you're hanging in here with us and a lot of flexibility. <laughs> Okay, so um, I think we've agreed to continue this to our meeting of uh, October 2nd. 
when we will have a full complement, including our new commissioner. And I think that he used to do public personal services. I think next. I think I read that. <laughs> Director Eisen, thank you for your additional input at the end of the meeting. Okay. All right, so we are ready for announcements and item 20 here. commissioners announcements and our president minor. I'm sorry to interrupt. We have a raised hand. Are we going to take public comment? Um, well, I did take public comment earlier. Someone has comments on. Um, sure, we'll take public comment. Okay. Caller, please uh, state your name for the record. It's Patrick Manetzaw. I only want to say really briefly thank you so much for continuing this to the October meeting. I will be submitting additional uh, testimony for you to consider between now and then. I will send it to uh, Ms. Ang and ask her to forward it to you, including my recent Westside Observer article that discussed that June 5th BCH personal service contract for 18 million and how it compared to the previous personal service contract numbers, all four of them. Um, and again, you guys really need to consider uh, in your new online mechanisms, some process for linking contracts actually awarded under a PSC authorization so the public can find them easily to compare whether services being proposed for a new PSC number have already been provided under a previous PSC number. So. Stay tuned. I'll be sending you more um, information. I hope you will consider before your October meeting. Thank you so much for bearing with me today. Uh, thank you for your additional comments. Okay. Um, we are ready for the next agenda item. Item uh, 21, adjournment. It is now 548. We, we didn't do uh, oh, commissioner announcements. I thought I had already caught uh, this item. Item 20, commissioner's announcements or requests. Uh, commissioners, any uh, requests or announcements? I think I already requested this, but in, could we consider um, putting the follow-up reports on consent calendar? You mean the on the, uh, on the PSC? regular? There we had recording. I don't, I'm not sure if I asked or not. I know I, I was thinking of put the follow up PSC reports on the consent. That's contract. a good suggestion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That dovetails with the idea of having like a form of, that tells them what information we need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. okay. Any additional announcements, requests? Okay. Um, we're ready for the next agenda item. Item 21 is adjournment. It is 549 PM. Okay. Thank you. Good night, commissioners. Have you. a good evening. Elizabeth, thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. You're welcome. Bye, Elizabeth. Bye.